All right, welcome back everyone to the Sports Mill Podcast. It's been a while since we've been able to talk about some sports, both me and Sully getting done with school, had some time off, but we're going to get back into talking about the NBA playoffs. A lot has happened, obviously, since we've last recorded uh, pretty much the entire first two rounds. Um, And I don't know about you, Sully, but coming into the playoffs, I was kind of, the NBA, I was kind of burnt burnt out on it this year. I don't know for what reason, but I've actually really liked these playoffs, especially the second round. Last round kind of really got into those matchups, and I think we've seen a lot of interesting things play out. And obviously, we're going to get into how we got here and some of the matchups we're seeing now. But as far as you know, viewing these playoffs, how have your expectations uh, kind of gone with what's actually happened? Yeah, this is to me one of the first playoffs in a while where it really felt like you know eight or nine teams could could win the whole thing. And we had a little bit of that last year with the Bucks and the Suns, two newer teams rising to the top. But especially once we got into the second round this year, um, it feels like a lot of those teams that are now sitting at home were teams that had real chances to make runs in the playoffs. You know, even you think, go back to the first round and think about Brooklyn, a team that a lot of people thought had a chance to make a run. Um, so I, the parody has been nice. You know, it's been something that I feel like a lot of people have complained about in the NBA for a while is the lack of parody, especially in, the middle of the 2010s when it felt like it was Warriors Cavs pretty much every year. So I think that's been a nice shift. And the one biggest thing I've noticed is just the level of physicality in these series. I think it it definitely has to do with the teams that are playing. You know, you think about the Eastern Conference Finals, it's the Heat and the Celtics. That might be the two most physical teams in the entire NBA. Um, But there's been other series that have been like that as well. I mean, Golden State Memphis was super scrappy, sometimes overly physical with Dylan Brooks as well. Um, But yeah, I think um, even Dallas is a team that prides itself on his defense as well. So um, I think that's been that's been exciting to watch because um, especially in the regular season, you know, the NBA sometimes rightfully so takes some heat for the, the level of intensity and the defense. And I think we've seen both of those things on full display um, in the playoffs, and it feels a little more like 90s basketball than it does 2020. Yeah, obviously the, the biggest takeaway is that, the you know, postseason basketball is, is a lot different than regular season basketball. And you have to really step up your game. And it's a lot different depending on, you know, what team you are. Because, as you said, the physical teams have seem to do really well. Obviously, because of the it's the playoff times, there's storylines change so much game to game. That's one of the things that amazes me is how fast analysts and people can be quick to make takes after one game and then completely change after the next. Well, let's go back to the beginning because a lot of that seems like an afterthought now after the first round. But, you know, it was a pretty uneventful first round I would say there weren't really any close series except maybe you could argue the Memphis Timberwolves uh, Memphis and um, uh, the Grizzlies and Timberwolves series um, but the biggest shock I think was how easily the Celtics my Celtics handled the Nets and I want to talk about them for a minute obviously it doesn't really matter in the long run because they got swept so never really had a chance it seems like but that was still a lot of people's I would say favorite coming into the playoffs and then that just never really panned out and you can chalk that up to the season that they had and all the turmoil the Celtics being as good as they were defensively but you know it just never looked like they really put it together this year and you can blame that on whatever you want but what did you see from them in particular and especially why it looked so bad against the Celtics in that first round? Yeah, it's interesting because even when you look at that series, it it was the closest sweep by point differential in NBA history. And so obviously it was it was a beat down. Um, But the net the Nets did, I think, find a way to hang around a little bit 
in those games. Uh, it, it wasn't, you know, a terrible sweep, even though, you know, obviously anytime you get swept, it's going to be pretty bad. But I think the thing that stood out to me the most is how much having a full team that can defend almost one through five is just so valuable in today's game with Boston because they had so many guys that could switch on to Durant and they're not going to shut him down because it's Kevin Durant, but they can give him problems. And more importantly, they can switch on to these other players on Brooklyn and not create a huge advantage for a guy like Seth Curry or Goran Dragic or um, one of those guards because, you know, Tatum or Grant Williams, those guys are athletic enough and quick enough and crafty enough defensively that they can still hold their own in that regard. And so to me, they they were so, you know, their, their rotations were amazing and Durant pretty much had no room to work. And then we saw Giannis go through similar issues, even though Giannis definitely performed better. Giannis went through the same things in round two against Boston where um, they they were going to force another guy to beat him. And when you're when you're a good enough defense to where you have enough guys that can rotate in and out on the superstar um, and a great offense as well, that's a really tough team to match up with. Yeah, you can, you know, obviously the playoffs is, is best out of seven every series. So there's there's some room for some bad games, but at the same time, there are times where we've seen teams just there. They unfortunately go through a bad stretch, and that seemed what kind of what happened to both Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving. But it just seemed like they they quite didn't have the help. Plus, that also it never looked like they were comfortable playing with each other. And I think you know they kind of as the series went on, it felt like they just said, "All right, we'll we'll we're going to mail it in for next season." And so what's interesting to see is you know Ben Simmons obviously. I don't know whether to feel sorry for him or if he if he gets what he deserves. I don't know. But obviously he was supposed to play, then didn't play. Um and so, you know, I saw all the all the tweets about, you know, his injury and, and it was pretty ridiculous that he wasn't able to but looking back on that trade that they made with with the seventy sixers for James Harden, you know, going forward, what kind of do you think that was the correct move going forward? Obviously James Harden has issues of his own, uh, in the postseason. But does this set themselves up for, for future success? Yeah, I think they're probably still in a better position just because you you at least have more flexibility. And Simmons is definitely easier to move at this point than Harden because um, it, it, Harden is probably either going to opt into his $47 million extension um, or he will end up signing a deal that's probably spread out over more years. Um, but either way, Simmons' contract is probably going to be shorter and for less money not to mention that you um, acquired guys um, like Drummond, Curry, et cetera. And to me, Simmons, and we've talked about this before on the podcast, but Simmons just provides things for that team that they need desperately relative to Harden, who's a little bit more of a luxury. Now, the thing with the Nets is for Harden to be a luxury, Kyrie Irving has to be playing on, on the court. And that wasn't the case for much of this past season. And in the playoffs after about the first game of the the Boston series when Kyrie was fantastic. After that, he wasn't active very much on the court either. So that's the biggest thing to me is like with this move on from Harden, Kyrie now becomes a necessary piece for them and he's got to be dependable. And who knows if that's ever going to happen? You know, I, who knows what'll come up next. that will cause him to maybe miss some games, um, get injured or just not play particularly well as he's a small guard and small guards don't age well um, a lot of the time. So, yeah, I think Simmons is important. There's already been some rumors about, you know, oh, could could the Nets move him for somebody else? Could, you know, could they move him for Sabonis or, you know, any other guy in that tier? I would be surprised if that happened just because I think people, you know, if people wanted Simmons, they could have had Simmons 
six months ago. But yeah, I, I definitely think this Nets roster will undergo a lot of change in the offseason. And they just have to depend on Kyrie Irving to actually show up and play basketball. Right. Looking back on that trade, I do think I think it was a mistake to bring Harden to to Brooklyn in the first place. It's one of those things where it seems great that he's disgruntled in Houston. You can bring a third star in, but he wasn't a good fit, and he obviously has a lot of issues on his own. Simmons does as well, but if you can ever get him back on the court, he fits a lot better with Durant and Irving. And like you said, he provides things that other stars don't want to provide. He doesn't, and he doesn't have to score. So that'll, that'll work perfectly along with Irving and Durant. See, I like the move in the long run, and I, th- I do think this was a case of the Nets just kind of – it wasn't their year. And obviously I'm, I'm happy that the Celtics swept them, but I, I do think you know they'll be better moving forward than, than we saw them. Um, yeah, and with the Harden deal, I think it's so difficult because honestly, like if I ask the question, like if Kyrie Irving gets vaccinated, are the Nets still like is Harden still happy in New York? And I think the answer might be yes, which is shows how volatile like that entire situation was. Because I really think the first thing that led Harden to start to want to push his way out of there was just all of that other stuff yeah. going on in Brooklyn that the distractions you know if Brooklyn is the one seed or the two seed at that point I don't I don't I just can't imagine that Harden is still going to be looking at another option so you know looking back obviously like you probably would just rather have all those assets that the Nets gave up you know all those players like Jared Allen Karis LeVert I mean Jared Allen would be a great addition for the Nets at this point that's a guy they would love to have on that roster so yeah looking back obviously it's a mistake but you know, they were playing in good, as good as basketball as anybody last year before they got hurt in the playoffs. And if anybody could have seen the vaccination thing coming, obviously things would have looked a lot different in Brooklyn. Yeah, there's a lot of stories coming out after the fact about, you know, Harden and Irving's relationship and some of the things that happened on the practice court. And obviously, you know, Harden was probably disgruntled that Irving wasn't playing and then was was able to say things like he was to him. So it, it was just a bad situation. And that's what happens. I think we're seeing that's what happens when you have so many stars on one team. Um, and we'll see how the Nets are able to handle that moving forward with, with with Irving still, and hopefully with COVID and everything clearing up, it won't be as much of a problem. But I do yeah, want to move it's on. funny because the one I'll add one thing quickly. Yeah. It's funny because the one thing with Harden, you know, Harden I wouldn't say is a, a role model for other players in terms of the way like the effort he puts in constantly. But the one thing he always did was show up for work. I mean, in yeah. Houston those years, he was playing you know seventy five to eighty two games every single season for four or five years, even probably beyond that in a row. And so I think that it's funny because, you know, Harden still has his warts as well. But the one thing that you could always count on him to do was the thing that Kyrie couldn't at all. And I feel like that definitely caused some tension in between those guys. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, And yeah, well, I don't know. Would you rather have a guy who shows up for work every day and gives half effort or a guy who load manages and plays really hard when they're on the court? And that's kind of the – what you're getting out of, you know, the difference between, I think, Kyrie Irving and James Harden. Um, I do want to move on. Obviously, you know, we want to talk about the teams that are still in the playoffs. But uh, the other team I want to talk about that we saw about in the first round, like I said, pretty uneventful um, first round. I, I don't think actually any of the series made it to seven games. Um, is the Utah Jazz and, and the Dallas Mavericks series. Luca, obviously, we're going to get to him in a while, um, which, by the way, our MVP pick, you know, while it didn't pan out in the regular season, definitely looking like a good one for the postseason. Um, but the Jazz, you know, if there was ever a time to, to get out of the first round and try to advance, it was this season. And, and it seems like all their issues 
have finally come to a head, and they just looked, you know, downright pitiful. I think they won two games, but I mean, even those were struggles. So, uh, is it what is what is the future for the Jazz? I mean, obviously, I think at this point, it's somebody's got to go. It's just going to be who. So, what's your feel for what's going to happen in Utah? Yeah, and it's funny because even you look back at that series, Luka didn't play the first three games, and they the Jazz were down two one. Like this was not even a full strength Mavericks team at that point, and they still were down. Yeah, I think either Mitchell or Gobert is not going to be back. One of they, I, I think that relationship is pretty much severed at this point, and it seems like the front office is pretty aware of that. I will be really interested. I think most people think that Gobert is the one that will be gone, and. I would say that's probably more likely, but I still think that there's a real chance that Donovan Mitchell gets moved because yes, Gobert is the worst player. Like there's probably, there's probably not very many people that are going to take Rudy Gobert over Donovan Mitchell, but Mitchell is the guy that's going to get you assets to restart a rebuild. Like trading Gobert, he's on a huge contract and he's a very polarizing player. I don't think you're going to get the same offer that you would for Mitchell. And so that's going to be, I think the thing that Utah has to deal with is yes. Like, obviously I think you'd rather have Mitchell, but honestly, and I I'm probably been on this side for longer, but I'm not sure Mitchell is a guy that I would want as a top two player on my team trying to win a championship to begin with. So the question for me with Utah is like, do you even consider blowing it up completely? Like, do you just trade Mitchell and go bear and try to restart this thing? Because especially like if you trade Mitchell, I mean, this perimeter defense would have to improve so much for a team built around Gobert and a second star to excel because right now they just have no perimeter defense whatsoever. And obviously Mitchell is one of the biggest issues with that currently. So I think this team is far enough away that they should even really be considering a full rebuild, even if that's not a five or six year thing, like flipping those guys and getting some assets back may be a smarter decision to begin with because I'm really not sure either of these guys are championship core pieces. Yeah, that's a really good point that, you know, no matter who they decide to trade, do they do they even have a championship player on that team? Because like you said, Donovan Mitchell is the one you'd probably build around, but is he really worth that? You know, is he someone you can even win a championship with as the number one or number two player? And you're right, I, I don't know. I haven't seen enough from him, honestly, as a complete player to say that. So, yeah, honestly, I would lean more. If you're going to get rid of Mitchell, I would lean more towards also getting rid of Gobert because I don't know if you want him either at that point. Um, yeah, so you would be- have to have a really good plan to replace Mitchell with a second star soon yeah. because, like, if not, you're just going to turn into Portland. Like, you're just going to be this team that's, oh, maybe we'll win the lottery one year and we'll talk about the lottery later. Obviously, they didn't. And now you're just kind of looking at this team like, I mean, they're just going to be mediocre again, like unless they make some huge addition. So, yeah, Utah's going to have to figure out a way to get themselves out of, out of the middle here. Yeah, and I think that, you know, it'll be interesting to see who they prioritize because I do think Dwayne Wade being there is going to be a problem. I, I, don't, I think he likes Donovan Mitchell a lot from what I've seen, and I don't think he's going to want to let him go. So I think that's also a big factor to it as well. Um, so yeah, a lot of movement. yeah, and Ainge obviously just joined that front office yeah. as well from Boston. I mean, I, who knows what his opinions are on those two guys, but he's going to have a lot of influence over that as well. It's such a difficult thing for a team like that because you know no free agents want to come there, so you're going to have to do things through the draft and in trading. So yeah, they they really are in a conundrum because your decisions are going to affect your franchise for years to come. Because it's not like you can just say, okay, well if this doesn't work out, we're going to go get some big free agents. That's not happening in Utah. So they got to make the right decision here, and that'll be something that really interesting to see. 
Um, the last thing I want to talk about from the first round very quickly is, you know, we'll talk about the lottery in a while, a team that has had success in the last couple of years. Uh, and that was the Pelicans. They got Zion Williamson, obviously, you know, had, you know, the big trade for, for Brandon Ingram, Alonzo Boston, and Anthony Davis, to the Lakers. They kind of surprised people with their playoff performance against the Suns. And I think we saw the Suns maybe weren't, I hate to say not as good as we thought, but they certainly didn't perform to the level we saw in the regular season. But how much hope do you have for the Pelicans now? And it seems like Zion has come out and said that he wants to be in New Orleans. Uh, if that's the case, you know, is this a team that we're looking at, you know, actually being a factor for a championship in the coming years? Yeah, I mean, I think it's important that you hit on Zion, the announcement, because I think a lot of people are looking at the performance in the playoffs and saying, oh, yeah, that's like that's a bright future team. And I. I generally agree, but the best news they've had in the past couple of months was Zion saying that he wants to be a part of this core because I think that was something that was really in question um, at this point in the um, in their off season. And so for them to know that that's a guy they can build around and continue to acquire more talent, I'm not sure I'd put him in the title contenders or favorites next year. But like that's a team I could see in the finals. I mean, if Zion gets back to how he was playing, um, what was that last year or two years ago, whenever that was, when he was averaging you know, 28 a game on 60% shooting. Like that's a good enough player to, to me, make a run for you. And obviously you have CJ and Brandon Ingram now, like that's a pretty solid big three. Um, And you've, they've been able to build, start to build around the edge as well as well. Like, you know, Alvarado is a guy everybody loves and even Herb Jones coming in as a rookie um, and Trey Murphy has started to uh, blossom as well there. And, um, in New Orleans. So, you know, these recent draft picks after Zion, they, they may not be superstars, but they're good role players that are going to help a winning team. Yeah, I'm not ready to say they're they're ascending to like a championship level team because you just said they have so many young role players that it's you can't count on them necessarily to all of a sudden this to be their new normal every year. And like you said, Zion's a big part of that. But I do think Brandon Ingram and CJ McCollum are really good pieces to have as your second and third players. I think McCollum is kind of going to accept that he's not the star player, especially as he ages. And so if Zion, if Zion does come back and plays at a very high level, you know, he's shown over the, the, the time on, his, on the floor that he's one of the most dominant players in the league. So I really think the Pelicans have a chance to, to make some noise in the coming years, and they're not in the strongest division necessarily either with the Rockets and the Spurs kind of floundering around right now. So I do think that, you know, they, they have a chance to be really good. And, and it was – it was interesting to see how they played against the Suns because they they exposed, I think, a lot of the Suns' weaknesses, but also they showed that this is a team that has a chance to build on their success going forward. Yeah, and the other thing about the Pelicans is this is not a team that's given up all their assets to acquire the talent they have. They still have, you know, obviously they got pretty much the entire Lakers organization in the Anthony Davis trade, it feels like. And so they still have some of those picks left. They're going to be, they have a top 10 pick this year from the Lakers trade. I think it's eighth overall, maybe. Um, so that's something that they're also going to, they're still going to be able to acquire potentially some good talent at the top of this draft this year uh, with other assets um, stored up as well. And people are going to want to play with Zion Williamson. Like even though New Orleans is not maybe a free agent destination, I do think Zion is one of those guys that has pull to other players. I, I think he is that kind of talent and personality um, w with guys. Like he's one of those guys that people look at as the elite of the elite, even if he hasn't necessarily shown that consistently yet. I think players respect him a lot. So yeah, I, I, I think New Orleans has a good chance to continue to improve this core as well. All right, let's move on to the second round. And this is where I really think the playoffs got interesting. I think we're going to look back on it and think this was the best round of the playoffs. Storyline wise, with the you know we saw a lot of great performances, 
I want to start with Miami and Philadelphia. Um, I was talking to my dad about how this is this to me this series perfectly explained the what the NBA playoffs are because you had the first two games Joel Embiid was hurt. Uh, all the MVP talk that he didn't get it because uh, Jokic or you know Jokic got it again. Whatever, who should have gotten it? He misses the first two games. The Heat rolled him right, and now it's oh Philly's dead. Philly's in trouble. There's no every podcast. Ron Rosillo, they were all saying that. Then it goes to two to two, and it's like oh the Sixers could win the series. They could win the finals. And then two games later, it flips back again. They've now been eliminated, and you know Doc Rivers has the worst post-game press conference I've ever heard in my life so let's start there because a lot of stuff went wrong in those final two games but for him to come in to the podium and he seemed really defensive throughout that entire series and to come in and say that nobody expected us to be here um was to me insane because you have Joel Embiid James Harden before that you had Ben Simmons you at least were picked to be a top four team in the east so you made it as far as at least you were supposed to. I mean, it's not like I, I didn't get that comment at all, and I think it just shows how flawed that team was. Um, I don't know. What's the issue there in, in Philadelphia? I mean, I don't even know what, what we want to talk about here. Obviously, they made the big trade for James Harden, but it seems like Philly gets to the same spot every year, and then we find they exit in a terrible way, and we have to evaluate what their issues are. So, eventually they're going to have to get to a point where they have to figure out the problem in order to move forward. So what is that? What's the diagnosis? Yeah, I think you have to be careful with this series, but you also have to be fair. And what I mean by that is like they they lost two games without Embiid. Like if, if Embiid was healthy throughout this whole series, and he was clearly still very affected. I mean, every time he got touched in the face, it looked like he was about to die for the rest of the series. Like he was, he did not want to be involved in contact with that series very much at all. So it's what's crazy thinking about the position they're in is if he was healthy, I think they might've won. I think they probably win that series. Like they were down two Oh, um, and, and still got it to game six afterwards. And so with that, with that said, still some of the things that happened in that series were very alarming uh, because, you know, Harden had the game where when they tied it up two two and Harden had the breakout game in game four, everybody thought, oh, are they like, you know, if they if they look like this, they could win. The, that's what you were talking about. They can make the finals. Uh, but then he regresses back to what we've seen from him more recently, and Embiid's not at full strength. And, you know, they, they were really relying on Tobias Harris this playoffs to be one of their main scorers. And that's not usually a great sign if you're a team trying to win the championship. No disrespect to Tobias Harris, but he was really good for them, and they still um, – weren't able to, you know, Maxi, another guy that stepped up and they still couldn't get through the second round. So I do think we have to be fair. If Embiid's healthy, I think they win the series, but that doesn't mean there's not issues they have to deal with. And especially that they're going to have a major decision to make with the Harden contract. And I think there's been some stuff come out that has come out that's indicated that Harden does want to be in Philly, that he wants to work with them and he doesn't want to just take every penny from them, which I think is a good sign for them. And seems to me like what's probably going to happen is they're going to agree on maybe a three or four year deal at a lower average annual value than the $47 million player option he has for next season. Um, but spread that money out over a few years. And if they do that, they will have some flexibility. Obviously Maxi is still on a pretty cheap deal. And that's really, to me, the question is, can Maxi become a player that can score 25 points a game through a full season, or is he still a guy where as much as I enjoyed watching this playoffs, 
there's games where he's not as much of a factor. And he's he's one of those guys that some one game you might get 30 and the next game you might get 12. And so if, to me, if he can evolve to being more of an on-the-ball threat, um, which not not saying he's not at this point, but if he can continue to take on more of that volume, especially as Harden ages, and give up a little bit of that slashing cutting role, I think that's what might be necessary for them, assuming the roster looks pretty similar next year. Yeah, it it was really embarrassing that final game, how bad they looked. And obviously, you know, the Danny Green injury didn't help. Like you said, Joel Embiid going down didn't help. I genuinely thought that the Sixers had one of the – I mean, their starting five was James Harden, Tyrese Maxey, Joel Embiid, Danny Green, and Tobias Harris. Offensively, that's one of the best starting fives in the postseason. And, and I genuinely thought coming in they had a good chance to make it to the finals, uh, and then it all kind of fell off. Um, but I do have to ask, you know, what do you think about, you know, not signing Harden for them? I guess would be my question. Is this is that even an option after after the trade, or because at this point, I don't obviously you don't want to let him walk in free agency and get nothing for him. So I guess you kind of have to. But that's the answer to me. I mean, that's that, that's what it is. Like you just don't get anything back. So yeah. you, the way the NBA works, like if you're if you're not as familiar with the way the NBA salary cap works, basically what happens is to re-sign your own players, you're allowed to go over. Um, the salary cap until you hit what they call the hard cap. So basically, a team can spend over the salary cap to get their own player back, but if they don't go sign their own player, they can't go get other free agents. And so maybe there's an outside chance of a sign and trade. You know, if they sign him and then trade, um, flip flip a couple players for him. That's really the only possibility. Like I, I would be stunned if they let him walk because you're just not getting anything back for the asset. And Maury, more than anybody, is a guy that's going to be super concerned about you know value and making sure he gets the best, most out of this deal. So it, it sounds weird, but I still think paying Harden a little bit too much money is probably better than just completely losing him for nothing. Yeah, I agree. And, and it, they're really just stuck in between a rock and a hard place because I, I don't blame them for, for trading Ben Simmons. I would have too. I mean, I would be fed up with him. But you you made your decision, and now you're in bed with Harden, and you really don't have a you know you have to roll with him, and I don't know if he's worth what he's going to get paid, and I don't know if he can play at the level they need him to in order to win a championship, and it's frustrating because, and we'll get to this. Obviously, the Miami Heat are still in the playoffs, and Jimmy Butler is leading them to what could be a potential Finals run with with a two one lead on the Celtics. But it seems like Joel Embiid is still salty that they did not keep him. And he made that comment during the season. He made that comment after they lost. Um, and I just can't help but wonder if Joel Embiid is, is really frustrated with what the organization has done and if he and Harden are ever going to be able to work because it doesn't seem like he's happy with, with how things have been constructed. And to that point, you know, I'm not sure that Doc Rivers is is the answer at coach either. So I just think they have a lot of organizational issues and roster construction issues that are, I don't know if they'll ever get sorted out. And we're just going to go through this song and dance every year of them getting, you know, torpedoed in the second round or wherever it may be. Yeah. And the other thing, I mean, not to make Sixers fans like crash their car as they're listening to this, but Joel Embiid has one year left on his contract. Like, that to me is why there's going to be some urgency in Philly. Like, if they don't figure this out, he can he can walk. And so then what? You're you have an aging Harden and Maxi and Tobias Harris. Like, what is that team? Like, what 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 are you ever going to do with that? So 
yeah, they, they need to figure this out soon. And I do think that, like, to be fair, I think Embiid loves Philly. I think he wants to be there. And it seems like he's one of these guys that really takes pride in trying to bring a title to this organization, even with how many times that it hasn't worked out. But if this continues to fail over and over, there's going to be a point where he has to reflect and say, like, is this the best situation for me? And so Philly does have a lot of pressure on them this offseason because um, I haven't heard very many people talking about that. But, yeah, I mean, they've they've got to figure out what how to please Embiid before, um, before this – next year because maybe he'll sign an extension soon and they'll figure this out but as of now it's one year left yeah and B doesn't strike me as the type of player to go ring chasing somewhere else and I don't think he's the type to jump on like a super team so that'll be interesting because I do think he wants to be the best player on the team so I, I think he will be wanting to stay in Philly it'll just be how bad does he want to put up with everything um, yeah yeah certainly I, I definitely think he would prefer to stay yeah but it, there there has to be a point, and maybe there's not, but it feels like to me there has to be a point where if he doesn't feel like the organization is, has supported him and they really haven't over the past five or six years, um, that I feel like there would be a point where you just say, I, I think I need to try somewhere else. Yeah, yeah, it'd be interesting to see if he decides that where where would be the landing spot because he is such a such a weird type of archetype of a player to, to play around. So you would have to kind of restructure your entire team around him. So that'll be interesting to see what happens with the Sixers, obviously. And, you know, it's it's very similar to what happened, you know, last year. We're kind of back to back to square one, and except now you have to worry, you know, deal with James Harden instead of Ben Simmons. Um, you know, like I said, the second round, a lot of other interesting storylines. I want to talk about some of the other teams. Um, and, and with the Grizzlies, um, you know, a very young team. Had a great regular season. I honestly thought they performed up up to about their ceiling in the playoffs until the John Morant injury. And even after that, you could argue they probably should have they they won. They blew out the Warriors in game five. Probably should have won game four. And that's what was amazing to me is that they they probably should have been up three two without John Morant. Um and they just they kind of choked away the game in, in game four. Um, but you know, how, how hopeful are you going forward that this roster, cause they said they're going to pay a ton of money to keep this team together. I'm not so sold on them making it. I really am not, you know, I, I don't know if this team is one you want to necessarily say, yeah, this is going to get us to the finals, you know, for a decade to come. So first of all, how impressed were you by jaw when he was playing and is he the superstar that can carry a team and, and is two, is this a supporting cast that is good enough that you build your team around? Yeah, I don't I don't think Ja is at the level that can carry a team. Like I don't think Ja can do what Luca is doing. But I do think he can probably be the best player on a finals team if he continues to improve. The question with me, and it's gonna be really interesting to follow this over the next few years, is there's almost this experiment and of course I'm gonna bring up the Thunder because I'm a Thunder fan, so whatever. But there's kind of this these are there's these battling ideas in front office philosophies and Memphis which Memphis still got super lucky and got the number two pick in the year John Morant was the number two pick. So they built through the draft just like any team would. But Memphis has decided, like, we're going to accelerate this. We're going to try to acquire as much talent as we can early on and allow this team to get their lumps in the playoffs and continue to develop. They've drafted a lot of guys that are NBA-ready, and they're still really good, like Desmond Bain. is a great player. But that's what they've targeted more until this past year. And then they took Zaire Williams at 10, which is much more of an upside swing. But Memphis has generally said, like, we're going to try to be good early. And then you see the opposite with Oklahoma City, where it's like, 
we want to slow this timeline down so that we can acquire as much talent as possible and then we'll make our run and it's really interesting to me because i i'm i kind of agree with you like with this current roster i'm not sure memphis can make the finals and there there probably will be a year where things open up and they have a really good chance but to me the biggest x factor and this was my most improved player pick before the year and the reason why I was higher on the Grizzlies going into the season, as we talked about, was Jaron Jackson Jr. And you saw in the playoffs this year, you know, he's a great three-point shooting big. He's very versatile defensively, but he picks up six fouls in like 25 minutes, like half the games he plays in. And he's got to be able to stay on the court for them because he opens up so many things for them, especially when it's preventing them, you know, against certain teams like Golden State. You know, you just probably, most of the time, you, a lot of times you just can't play Adams against certain teams. Like against Minnesota, you just couldn't play Steven Adams. So in Golden State, he was able to play more and be more effective. But Jaron Jackson Jr. is, to me, the most important factor for them because Jaws is a superstar. We know that. We know Bain's a great player. And Junior Jaron Jackson Jr. is a big man that can shoot 40% from three and defend at a defensive player of the year level. But he's just got to stay on the court. Yeah, I agree with you that that Jaw is not. I don't think the the superstar that can necessarily do it by himself. He just doesn't have the game, the type of game. If he, and I think if he ever developed like a, uh, and he has a competent shot, but a a really good three point shot, then we're we're talking about that differently, maybe. But he also just the way he plays, it's very concerning injury wise. And I've seen a lot of people talk about that. But I think you made a good point. Um, they had three players who could could have legitimately won the, the most improved player. John Morant did. He gave the award to Desmond Bain, and like you said, Jaron Jackson could have won as well. But is that necessarily a good thing? Because normally, if you're up for most improved, that means well, we you weren't that good, and now you've improved to like what we think is your peak. I mean, that's kind of what I, I don't know. And so, I don't know how much better like Jaron Jackson can get. And maybe he adds more to his game. I think Desmond Bain's about peak Desmond Bain. I just don't see much more out of his game. Maybe I'm wrong with that. So I just don't know if those guys are ever going to develop into the um, like superstars that we saw with Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, Draymond Green, like that kind of like core at a young age where we were like, oh wow, this is all of a sudden a dynasty. I don't know if that's the Grizzlies, and and I do like the they have a lot of guys who they put on that team who are really good playoff guys. Anthony Melton, uh, Kyle Anderson, you know, you mentioned Steven Adams, Dylan Brooks. Those are guys you have to have on championship winning teams. So I like what they did there, but I don't know if the top end talent is enough. And we kind of saw that with the Warriors because every time they got to a late game situation, it was like, well, you know, the Grizzlies put up a good fight, but all right, now the Warriors are going to win this game. And that's kind of how I feel like it's going to go with this core for the rest of, for the rest of the time. Tom, yeah, to me, there's like three routes they can they have to improve this team, and the first one is has to do with their depth. And you mentioned it. You know, they got they have guys like Kyle Anderson, Dylan Brooks, Stephen Adams, um, DeAnthony Milton. They have a lot of ways they can play you. At some point, a two for one trade or a three for one trade is something that they will probably have to consider because they have so many guys that can give quality minutes. But then there's still some questions like, do you really want Dylan Brooks out there jacking up threes in crunch time? Like. You probably need him out there because he's one of your better defenders, but I think converting that depth in for some more star talent might be something they pursue. They still have some good assets. Um, they're they're not a team that's depleted their their farm um, to get these guys they have currently. So that just like New Orleans, um, they still have moves they can make. But to me, the biggest thing is you look at guys like 
mainly Zaire Williams, who was a guy I wasn't particularly high on last year coming into the draft, but I, I at least like the thought process of taking him because that's a guy where if he does develop into a great player, that's a guy that can raise your ceiling. That's a guy that can take you from a second round team to a finals team if he does you know, in the 5% chance it works out, that's a guy that can transform your team. And so that to me is what Memphis needs to keep doing in the draft is try to find these pieces, mainly these wings. I think obviously, Ja, you've kind of got ball handling figured out there. Try to find some wings that can play make, that can defend. And if you can do that, then maybe you've got a chance to raise your ceiling. But yeah, with this currently constructed roster, I think there might be a year where um, things open up. Ja is a great postseason um, and they can squeak their way in, but I think it's going to be difficult for them to be contending year in and year out. Yeah, and I, I don't want to be all negative about all the teams that were, were eliminated because it's easy to be like, well, they're they were eliminated, so let's talk bad about them. But I do think I like the Grizzlies team a lot, and I I picked the Warriors to make it to the finals, and, and it it went about how I expected. Um, I think Jaw is really good. I think he played better in the playoffs than I expect, especially in that Warrior series when he was healthy than I expected him to. But it'll just be interesting to see how that young, that useful talent grows into, okay, now we actually expect something of them. Um, and it, you, you can say, well, right now we're not really expecting much out of them because they're so young, but how long does that actually last? And so at some point that's going to have to translate to wins, and it'll be interesting to see if that actually happens. Yeah, and we look at a lot of teams, I think the problem is we look at a lot of teams like Memphis and we're like, oh, if they keep improving, you know, maybe in two years, if you look at the other teams around the league, they'll stack up pretty well. And you're like, yeah, I agree with that. But look at how the league was two years ago. I mean, think about how many diff- how many guys are in different places, how many teams have transformed in that time to acquire new talent. Like, the league never stops moving around. And so if you're not getting better at that point, then you're like you're getting worse. You're allowing these other teams to catch up to you. So yeah, it'll be really interesting to see what Memphis uh, can do in the next couple of years to continue to improve their roster. Because I do think they have a great young core, and like I don't want to downplay how impressive they've been um, over the past couple of years. So yeah, I think Memphis team is still has a really bright future. But like we've talked about with some other teams, you know, some additions are going to be made to uh, need to be made to reach that ceiling. Right. Yeah, you're exactly right. And. Um, you know, this always seems to be a, a team in the playoffs like that. And that is, we expect more of them going forward. That was kind of Atlanta this year. They regressed. So we'll see how that happens for, for Memphis going forward. Uh, the, the only other team I really want to talk about from the second round, obviously, I, I don't want to look too much into the Bucks thing. I really don't because they took the Celtics to seven games. The Celtics, I think we're going to talk about them too. They they have the makings of a team that can win the NBA Finals this year. The Bucks were without Chris Middleton, took the Celtics to seven games. Giannis was incredible. It just it didn't happen this year. They're coming off a championship last year. You know, I don't think this was that much of a disappointment for them. They'll be back. They didn't get enough out of their supporting cast at times. I think Giannis tried to do too much. And it really was just a bad matchup for them because the Celtics can play defense better than anyone in the league. So I don't really want to, you know, make – a lot out of that, I think, you know, they were only a couple breaks away from, from being in this series against the Heat. So, um, you know, do you have any thoughts on the Bucks before we move on to, to what I thought was the biggest storyline of the second round? Yeah, I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head there. Like, this this is not any reason to freak out. Like, yes, there were things that were frustrating about this series. Like, Grayson Allen could not do anything for them. Um, and obviously, that's a spot that you would hope that Chris Middleton would be there to fill. 
But yeah, they took the team that I, at this point I would probably pick to win the NBA Finals to seven games without either their second or third best player. And Giannis over the course of the series averaged 34 points, 15 rebounds, and where's this? Seven assists per game. Like that is that's absurd. And I feel like I'm doing this. I have to do the same thing I did last year for Durant, which you know last year I said like I thought Durant was as good as as good as anybody in last year's playoffs. That's the same thing for Giannis this year's playoffs. Like Giannis still was probably the best player in the playoffs this year. And just because his team wasn't as good as Boston and because they were missing Chris Middleton, we shouldn't discount how ridiculously good he was in that series, especially because we already talked about how, you know, Durant really struggled against all the attention that was forced his way in the Brooklyn series. Giannis got that same exact attention and still put up those numbers I just listed off, which is absurd. So yeah, I think um, like shout out to Giannis. He had an amazing series. And even though they're not, um, even though they're not still around in these playoffs, they're still going to be a contender for the next few years for sure. Giannis is, he's amazing. And you, I don't know, I don't know if I'll ever be able to get there with best player in the world simply because he doesn't, it's frustrating to watch him at times because he seems to just throw his body into every defender. And if that, if that doesn't work, then it doesn't work. And that's about his, but he's at least picked up the passing part of the game to where he's so good at that, that he's effective but because he can't create his own shot at the end of a game or a shoot, I think that's where we really saw them miss Chris Middleton. So, yes, the statistics are amazing. But you look at a lot of those, he had triple doubles by halftime. I mean, he's going to do that, you know. But it's to me where he struggles his late game creating his own shot. And I don't know if he'll ever get there just because that's just not in his game. That's not who he is. Yeah, um, and, and I mean, I think the comparison and, – and to be clear, like I think I would take him over anybody at this point. Like I – I was I've been a Durant guy for the past couple of years. Like I, after the the way that both those guys played in this year's playoffs, like I don't I don't see any reason why I could have Durant over Giannis anymore. But Giannis to me, it, it's Shaq. Like that's what it is. Shaq was the same way. It was like he was the best player in the league for forty seven minutes, and in that last minute, you needed Kobe to maybe go create a shot. But he's so good in the other forty seven minutes that. I think I'd still rather have him than anybody else. And especially when you mentioned, you know, Chris Middleton, he is that guy. He like, that's what, that's his job for the Bucks. He creates those late games in those late game scenarios um, with the pick and roll. So yeah, I think Giannis, obviously like he's not a perfect player, but he's so dominant in the things he's good at. And especially you mentioned that increased playmaking and passing. He is so much smarter and so much better than he used to be at knowing where his shooters are, understanding where the help is coming from defensively and making adjustments at mid game with that stuff. Like, he, he has continued to evolve and improve every single year. Yeah. Yeah, I, I was so impressed with his playmaking in his playoffs. And he he really is, because he's not like he's a bad ball handler. I mean, you know, and he can drive. He's so long that he can get to the rim at will. He is he is literally a smooth jump shot away from being the best player to ever live. I genuinely believe that. Because if he could shoot, there would be no way to guard him. Because he is Shaq. He is Shaq. I mean, he is... He is that freakishly athletic and that freakishly long. And the fact that he was able to score 34 points a game without a jump shot in today's NBA is insane. Um, yeah, against the best defense in maybe the past like decade. Yeah, like, I mean... The Celtics have, are so good defensively. You have to realize that he's not shooting threes to put up those numbers, which is insane. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, shout out to Giannis and what he was able to do. I honestly never really... I never was worried. I always thought the Celtics had it. And they, they proved me right at the end. I didn't expect Grant Williams to go for 30 or whatever it was in game seven. Well, I didn't but, expect the Bucks to just plant Brooke Lopez in the middle of the paint and let Grant Williams shoot wide open threes the whole game either. But yeah, yeah. that was bizarre, man. I mean, I, I Boonholz is just a good coach, but he gets stuck in certain things sometimes. You're like, this is just not working. 
I really think that, and I heard people talk about this. I don't want to get too bogged down because I said we wouldn't, but I think they, he didn't know what to do outside of Giannis and Holiday. Like he didn't know what matchup to put on the floor. I think he tried Portis, he tried Lopez, and and he was like, I don't know what lineup to go with. And it bit him in the butt because he tried so many different things and then he didn't. And it was like, well, and that's what I do like about, you know, some of these other coaches like, you know, Eric Spolstra and, and Steve Kerr and Ime Odoka. They're not afraid to try new things in the playoffs and, and be like, if we need a boost, let, let's get it done. So, yeah, I think that's something slight. But if you have Giannis and Middleton, you know, I think they win the series. I, I'm going to be honest. I think Middleton changes it that much. Yeah, definitely. I think one of those games they win. And the last thing I'll mention on the on the Bucks season is the one thing you do kind of look back at and I think regret some. And the – the decision in the moment, I think, was fair, but trading Ibaka or trading for Ibaka and giving up Divincenzo, at the time they had no idea if Brook Lopez was going to be back healthy for the playoffs because of where his back was at. So I, I'm not hating on the deal. I completely understand why they made the deal, and Divincenzo was really struggling. But when you look at how Grayson Allen performed in that series and having a healthy Brook Lopez back, you know if that's Divincenzo on the perimeter guarding those guys, I don't think he gets targeted as much. I don't. I don't think that's as much of an issue for them. So I think that is a move you probably look back on and say, like, yeah, we probably regret that one. Yeah, yeah, you can what if all day, and and you need those. I mean, the Celtics, like we said, it's funny that we're now saying, you know, they could be the favorite, and you need those breaks in the playoffs, and, and you know, it, you can what if yourself to death. But yeah, if you're the Bucks, you can't freak out, and they still have last year's championship to comfort them. So not a bad, not a bad thing at all. Uh, all right, let's. We've kind of talked a lot about a lot. We still got to talk about the current, but the last thing I want to talk about elimination wise was what happened to the Phoenix Suns because, in my mind, there's really no excuse for what happened, and I don't want to take anything away from what Luca and the Mavericks are doing. But you're the 63 or 62, whatever it was, win team, number one team in the league, um, and they really just laid an egg. Like it, it, it what you can't blame it on. <laughs> obviously uh you know the whole pat bev stuff good grief after they <laughs> lost and you know he tweeted you know well somebody let's see who fakes an injury after they lose and of course chris paul then was like oh, i have a quad injury but i don't think you can even blame it on anything like that like they just they just played poorly and it's really embarrassing when you were the number one seed like that and and it wasn't like you could say well there's no experience either because they just came off a finals run so i mean how Obviously, you can say, well, keep the team together and run it back. But how badly is this going to hurt going forward for the Suns? Yeah, I think there was a really harsh realization the couple days after they they blew this game seven where you look up and you say, Chris Paul is 37. DeAndre Ayton is a restricted free agent this summer. Like This could look very different very soon for the Suns. And it felt like they were such in the prime of their window that that wasn't really a concern, but after such a terrible loss, and dude, yeah, that game seven, I mean, I don't even know what to take away from it because it was so bad. Like, there, I, there's not even anything I can look at and be like, oh, they did that well, but they struggled with this. Like, it was just so bad. And like, I don't know. I do think like Chris Paul was hurt. Like, I don't think he was making that up. Um, you could clearly see something was wrong with him. That's what you get with Chris Paul. Like, one every once every two years in the playoffs, there's going to be something going on with him. The one I can't explain is Booker. I just don't know what happened. Like, I don't know. There was a rumor that Kendall Jenner was like taking a break with him. Like that, that explains it more than anything else, dude. Like I just, that was so bizarre. And like, I don't know, Booker and Mitchell are two guys. Like I haven't been the biggest fans of in a while. So 
like I, I, I don't have as much faith in those guys as some other people, but even me, it was, I was sitting there like, what is happening? Like, this is, this is not the same player that we've seen throughout. And you think like mentally, he seems like one of those guys that's mentally tough and would fight through that kind of stuff. But the Aiton thing, he only played 17 minutes, refused to go back in the game. That's concerning to me because he, I mean, he could try to sign like a two plus one offer sheet somewhere else. Um, this this offseason and limit the the amount of years on his next deal with Phoenix if they even do choose to match like they're, they're in a difficult situation here and especially with how the year ended I think they're going to be hesitant to pay Aiton um, which means you've got to try to find some talent to replace him with there's such a weird story because obviously they went from the bubble to where they went from like one of the last teams that barely made it in to they won every game to the finals to this year and now it seems like it's all come crashing down in like a short period of time and yeah, I went from being a Devin Booker fan to quickly not being a Devin Booker fan after this series. Not only because he didn't perform, but because all, all, I'm such a Luka fan and the, all the stuff that went on with them. But I, I think we saw their flaw, and it's, it's always this with every good regular season team, is that when the going gets tough in the playoffs, who do you really have to go to? I, Chris Paul's never been that guy. There's a reason his teams have not made the finals. Devin Booker... Is looking more and more not like that guy, like 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 a Donovan Mitchell type player. And so then, who are you relying on? You know, Jay Crowder, M- Mikael Bridges. Like they just have a lot of guys who are really good players on a, in a regular season team. But you get to the playoffs and you're like, who's that guy? And I said all along, and obviously it's it's easy for me to say this now, and I didn't say it, uh, you know, recorded on a podcast. But I said if they get to a game seven, I think the Mavericks will win because I trust Luca more than any other player, and it, ha- it that's what happened. And it wasn't just I don't even blame Booker necessarily because I don't think anything he could have done that game would have won them that game. They lost by 40 or whatever it was. I think it was just a a systematic, they they play terrible. And Luka and the Mavericks, they messed up when they when they lost game six and not being able to win one on the road. I mean, I, I just think yeah. that it was embarrassing how badly they, they looked as a team. And you can't yeah, be I like mean, that when you're a 63-win team. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say is like the obviously game 7 like completely embarrassing, hilariously bad performance. But you can't let it get to 7 when you're the be- when you're that t- level of team. Like when you win 64 games, you can't let your seven, your second round series get to 7 games because especially when a guy like Luka is sitting on the other side of the court, he can win a game completely by himself and he probably would have done that even if Phoenix had played better. The guy like he basically matched Phoenix's score total in the first half. I think the Suns had 27 and Luka had 27. He almost outscored the Suns starters in the entire game. Luka had 35 and the Suns starters combined had 37 points. Like it, that is the problem. And this is something, you know, we're recording right now during the Golden State game, the game three. Um, so we don't know the result of that yet, but this is why, especially against a team like the Mavericks, you need to close it out early because they do have the one superstar that can win a game by himself. So when you're the better team, you can't let yourself get in that position to begin with. And obviously the Mavs have shot the ball great from three. I believe the percentage of like in terms of how, what percent of time in a possession that they shoot a three, I think it's the highest rate in playoff history um, because it's so much based on Luka driving and kicking. Um, When, when you shoot more threes, your variance is higher. You know, you've got a better chance to, to upset a team that's better than you. But yeah, Phoenix is in an interesting position this off season and, um, they're definitely a team I think we could see some change um, in, f- before next season. Yeah, the one thing I've learned in my in my 
21 years watching the NBA. Well, I wasn't watching it when I was a baby, but um, is that when a game when a series gets to a game seven, the t- the team with the best player normally wins. And so if you're the better team, but you're playing, you know, the the other team has the best player, you got to end it before seven because that player is going to obviously play their best basketball in game seven. And that's why it was so important for the Celtics to come out and handle the Nets like they did. Um, because a lot of times it's just so hard to stop a guy like Luka in game seven. And obviously we're seeing that now in the Warriors series. They're up in, in the third quarter against the Mavericks almost by double digits now. It, it hasn't gone as well in that series. And obviously now Luka, if they go down 3-0, it's going to be really hard for the even, – even if he is, you want to call him the best player in that series to win four games in a row. So that's what you got to do. Um, what, let's – Let's talk about, you know, let's get to the now. We'll start with the Mavericks and the Warriors. Um, we'll talk about some actual basketball stuff, hopefully, here. Um, I'm not necessarily surprised that it's it's been, you know, that they lost both games in Golden State, and obviously they can come back and win this one in, in, uh, at home, and that's, that's what they did in the Sun Series as well. Um, but the Warriors have had a, have had a good playoffs. I wouldn't say they've looked as, as good as they have in previous years. But I picked them to win the championship, so obviously I was really high on them. You know, how much do you like this team as, you know, a finals contender? Obviously, they're only a couple games away, so yeah, obviously. But, it, you know, are they should they be the favorite? I, you know, I think we said the Celtics, but, you know, are they the best team probably overall left in the playoffs? Yeah, I think I, think I would probably say the Celtics are the best team, but they're certainly right there with them. And, What's funny is I think it, it's still it's almost hard for me to imagine any of these four teams holding up the trophy because they all still feel flawed. Like even even Boston is not the typical kind of team that we see win a championship, um, even if they've maybe been the hottest team lately. Um, you know, Golden State, obviously they're probably the most familiar face, but this is a vastly different team from the one that has um, that won the other finals before. So. It, regardless of who ends up coming out of it, um, I do think it'll be interesting to have kind of a new face um, as as champion. But yeah, I think Golden State's right there. Certainly, you almost have to give them the advantage right now just because in terms of odds, because you trust them to get out of their series way more than you do either team in the East. So, you know, right now, if you're asking me who the betting favorite is, it's definitely Golden State. Um, but I think Miami especially could cause problems for them with we saw how much chaos Miami caused against Boston. The one real weakness to Golden State is how much they turned the ball over. And so I, I think Miami could really pose problems for Golden State defensively um, in terms of the nature of the way they play. And we know how elite Boston is as well. So I think whoever comes out of the East, assuming Golden State got, does get out of this series against Dallas, will give Golden State a, a really tough series. Yeah, I was really hoping we were going to be able to talk about some X's and O's stuff with them, but... They're up 11 now in the third quarter. I don't even think – if they go up 3-0, I don't think there's really much the Mavericks can do, which is unfortunate. But They had to win game two. Yeah. The way game two played out, like that that just had to be a win. Like it, it felt like Dallas played a great game, and they still just couldn't pull it out. I think what we're seeing with Dallas is that what, – what, and this makes Phoenix look even worse, is that you can't count on those other, other guys to be there every time. You know, Brunson's a good player, but if he's your number two – that's probably not a championship team. And so Luca is great. Love him. You know, I'm I'm borderline thinking that he if I had to start a, a team, I'd probably pick him. I know you said Giannis, but I just like Luca that much. And I think he can do everything on the floor. 
except maybe play defense. But I really do think that, you know, he needs help. And it's unfortunate because, yeah, they could have won game two. Um, but talking about the Warriors, how lucky it, were they to find Jordan Poole? Because I really do think without him, they're probably not in this position. Um, Clay's obviously getting back to full strength. Um, but I think that Poole has opened up their window again to maybe a, a couple more years of, hey, we can win more finals. I mean, do you think that's the case? Yeah, and, and to me, it's not just Poole. Like, there's, like Moses Moody is right. starting to play a little bit in these playoffs. Kaminga is another guy that I think Golden State is really high on, like maybe dangerously high. And, I, like, and I'll be honest, like I was a guy that this year felt like Golden State was squandering an opportunity a little bit and holding on to these young guys. And I still kind of feel that way. Like I still think that they could have gone out and acquired some more high-end talent, and especially with how open these playoffs feel right now, I think they could have used that. And so I still think they may end up regretting that decision, but they're really trying to stretch this into not just a two- or a three-year run. They're trying to they're trying to build the next team after Steph and Draymond and Clay are gone. And so I think Golden State is a team that we're looking at now. Is it, If they get over the hump now, they, they're still going to have six or seven years after this where they're going to be a really good team. So I, I think, you know, a lot of people were ready for for them to kind of fade away, and that's certainly not happening anytime soon. Yeah, and I think they have stars in Curry and Green especially that are going to age well. I, I don't like – Curry doesn't necessarily have to be super athletic to play at a high level. Green can play defense and pass at a high level, I think. with So, I mean, they're – and like you said, the one issue that I'm – I don't know. They made their bed with James Wiseman. They didn't trade for another center. They thought he was going to be back. He isn't. Um, but, yeah, they have a, a center in there, too, who's probably, you know, has the potential to be one of the best centers in the league. So, you know, I think the Warriors, it's scary for the rest of the league because they, they're only, I think, going to get better from, from here. I don't see this being their best form in the next couple of years. That's just me personally, and yet I, I would still, obviously me right now, I want the Celtics to win, but I, I would be terrified, you know, to see the Warriors in the finals, which is obviously going to ha- happen probably it, yeah. for whoever wins the Miami and, and what's funny is even then, like, Kevon Looney's been awesome lately, and he's almost yeah. been able to cover up some of those issues that may have affected them because, yeah, there are certain matchups where, Draymond is not going to be able to play the five and, and that's not really this series because Dallas loves to play small but um, you run into a team like the Heat or the Celtics if Robert Williams and Al Horford are healthy you probably are not going to want to play Draymond on the five all the time so Looney is a very valuable piece for them and he rebounds exceptionally well but yeah I mean even you look at some of these names that are around Jordan Poole at the end of that first round I mean Dylan Winder, Nasir Little, Ty Jerome, Keldon Johnson, Kevin Porter Jr., Nick Claxton, like those are the guys that were around that area. And and some of those guys are decent players, but for the Warriors to be able to see that potential and pool at the end of the first round, it's very rare that we see a guy um, excel this quickly. I mean, he was playing in the G League like not too long ago. I mean, the, the, the track he's been on has been super impressive for him to excel in the playoffs at this point. And I don't know. I mean, the way he fits so well with him, he's so quick. Like the way they use him off the ball as well, and um, he's got a little, he's got juice on the ball. So yeah, I, I they've definitely got a bright future and one uh, their fans should be excited about. Yeah, I mean, 
I, Poole in college, I watched a lot of him, was a great shooter, but that's really all they used him as. But, yeah, he what, he, what surprised me is he, with the ball, he is like De'Aaron Fox level quick. Like, he has this, like, weird, like, push-forward dribble that just gets him ahead yeah. of everybody. And so you, you look at his box score, he doesn't take many threes. Like, he only takes three or four a game, but he'll put 20 up based on two-pointers, which is really yeah, incredible he's, considering he was a shooter. And he's also one of those guys that – when he gets a full head of steam, it feels like he doesn't have to slow down when he gets to the rim. Like right. he, he can finish still going 100 miles an hour, and he's got the athleticism to go up and throw it down. But he's also he. I feel like he has so many of these up and under weird, like off an awkward leg finish where he gets an and one. Like he's so fast, but he also doesn't lose that aggressiveness as he gets towards the rim. So he's so difficult to guard. Yeah, I I really love players like him who they. I'm a big guy of you are who you are. You you can get you can improve and you can get better, but you you see a certain guy in college and you're like, there's a ceiling there. He's a guy who I never saw him being this type of player, and it's really like interesting to see how he went from being a shooter to now he's like this, you know, he can do anything he wants on the offensive end, and that's that's really that's really cool. And and yeah, the Warriors have to be like, man, we got really lucky. And I don't even think they saw this. I really don't. Yeah. And, and you, yeah. I think you saw that, but what, and this is a little tangent, but Steve Kerr did not want to play Jordan Poole for a long time. Like, he he fought it for forever, and now, you know, well, And the main reason it. is he can't defend at all. Like yeah. it, it, he is, he's worse than Steph. And, I mean, Steph's not a horrible defender by any means, but, like, Poole is – he can't guard anybody. Yeah. And so that, you know, generally speaking, those those head coaches, especially on good teams, are really hesitant to play younger players that can't play defense because they feel like – they're going to be streaky offensively. We can't fully depend on them. And also, if he can't defend, like there's going to be times where he's just a complete net negative for them on the court. But he's just been so electric offensively that he's been able to work through some of those struggles. And if he can continue to improve defensively, I think that's how he continues to grow as a player because he's, I mean, he's already great offensively. Yeah, yeah, you're right. And that, that is the one thing I will say if the Celtics make it to the finals that I'm, I'm happy about is I, they're going to have to really – figure out how to guard Boston because everybody on Boston's big and is, can bully you. So, yeah. you know, and Thompson's not the defender he was anymore either. So that's going to be yeah. interesting to see what they, what they do if they have to guard Tatum and Brown and, and Marcus Smart and things like that. Let's jump over to the, to the heat Celtic series. And we'll end on this before we, we get to kind of what we think will happen. But man, to me, this is the most interesting series uh, maybe in the playoffs so far, just because of the, the way the matchups are. I mean, I still like the Celtics even after what happened in game three. I don't know how you feel, um, but it was it was pretty embarrassing because as soon as as Butler, as soon as they came back to, uh, in the third quarter and they said Butler's not playing, I, I told my dad, I said, the Celtics are winning this game. I was like, there's no way we're not coming back. We finished the half off really well. But let me tell you, the thing that concerns me about the Celtics and why I don't know if they're a championship team, and it's what we talked about, is I thought Tatum was good enough but he has these games where he just disappears. And last night, I know he got hurt late. I honestly think that was a fake injury, if you want me to be completely honest. But Jalen Brown gave you 40. I mean, like, the guy I would expect if anybody was, which he still turns the ball over every other time he touches it. But it was really embarrassing because the the Heat had no business winning that game with the lineup they had on the floor. And the Celtics pretty much handed it to him. And that's what, that's what discourages me about saying they're – 
going to win a championship is that your star player cannot – he has to go win that game. He cannot disappear and score 10 points. Yeah, and I think this – I mean, even getting ahead a little bit, like if the Celtics do in the finals, this is why when all of you are listening, when first take comes on and says, is Jason Tatum a top five player, the answer is still no. Yeah. Because he has not been consistent enough to be regarded in that tier yet. And obviously he's had – like. The game was that game six against Brooklyn where he went for, uh, or no, sorry, there wasn't a game six against Brooklyn, um, against Milwaukee when he had like forty six and Giannis yeah. also had like forty four. Like he yeah. he also has those games in him, so you can't you can't disregard him at all. But there he does still have these duds, and I think he's a guy that even the game against the Bucks where he had like forty six. The um, there's a thing on Twitter that basically tracks the level of difficulty of the shots you take and then the percentage that you make them at. And so basically it's measuring the difficulty of your shots and then grading you against that rather than just like the number of shots you take. Tatum had the best grade of the playoffs in that game, which means he was still taking really difficult shots. He was just on fire and couldn't miss them at all. The problem with that is you also have these games where it feels like he's settling for jumpers and they're not falling. And then what else do you have? And obviously, he's athletic enough to get to the rim. He should be able to get to the rim. But it's not. it doesn't always work for him. And he's not the high, high-level playmaker to where teams are super concerned about that. So that's the biggest thing for me is, like, he's got to figure out when the shot's not falling, you have to get to the free throw line. And to me, that's the biggest adjustment for him. He's got to get – he's got to be willing to go in the paint. And obviously, the Heat are a super physical team, so most guys aren't going to want to do that. But that's, to me, the biggest adjustment for him. And if he can figure that out, I definitely think the Celtics win the series. And I think I would still pick the Celtics to win at this point. But, yeah, this I think this is, has a good chance to go seven. Yeah, I really thought after game two, I was like, man, the Celtics could win this in five or six. Like, at least win both games at home. And they should have. They, I mean, I, I was really disappointed in, in how the team played in general. I, the thing that concerns me with Boston is that, yeah, defensively, they, they make defense fun to watch. Like, they play defense so well, is that they cannot get healthy. It seems like every game somebody's out. I mean, you could say they should have won game one probably if they had Marcus Smart and Al Horford and they just kind of ran out of gas. Um, but they have to get everybody on the floor because they're not deep enough to to win a game where one of their star players plays poorly. I mean, they don't have the scoring – that, you know, you look down the list, you have Brown and Tatum, and then it's, oh, we hope we get a good game out of Horford or, or Grant Williams. And, I mean, that's – you can't bank on that either. And I think the Heat are kind of in the same predicament because you look up and down their lineup, and without Jimmy Butler, you know, you're like, where is the scoring coming from? And, fortunately, Adebayo had 31 in game three. Um, but, yeah, that's what I would be concerned about if I was Boston is they have to be able – to get production out of those those you know third and fourth and fifth guys because they're just not super deep. Yeah, and, and that to me is a little bit of a difference with Miami. Is I feel like a lot of times the nights where Butler has fifteen points, it's not because he was horrible. It's just because they do so many different things offensively and they kind of just take what you give them. That like there will be a game where you know Max Struess just has twenty or Gabe Vincent has twenty or you know like in game three Bam Adebayo has thirty one. It feels like when, and I still think Boston's a better team. So like, don't don't get me wrong, but it feels like Boston uh, doesn't have as many cards to play. If that makes sense offensively, like they they have their things they go to, and they're great most of the time. 
but the Heat have so many different ways they can beat you, so it's going to be really difficult for Boston to continue to adjust as the series goes on. Yeah, you know, we there, we saw a lot of injuries in Game 3, uh, Butler going out. I don't, I haven't really looked at necessarily what they said for him. Um, but they got Kyle Lowry back. We saw Victor Oladipo play very well. They have a lot of guys, but what concerns me with the Heat, looking forward from an unbiased perspective, is that I don't know if they have a scorer that you go to. And nobody really scares me offensively. I don't like Tyler Hero at all in the playoffs. I mean, I think he's proven that he can be good, but he's not a guy necessarily I'm saying, okay, yeah, I think he can win me this game. So that's what scares me for them is that if they get to the finals, I don't see them putting together enough offense to beat even, I mean, definitely the Warriors. Yeah, I think I'd be a little more optimistic, which I feel like I've been a little more optimistic yeah. on the Heat throughout the playoffs than you have been. But I, like I mentioned, like I think they could make the game very chaotic for, uh, for the Warriors, and that I, the size part would be interesting as well. You know, the Heat have a lot of physical guys, so the, the contrasting styles would be interesting as well. But um, yeah, I, I'm excited to see that series play out because both these teams are super physical, very competitive teams. Feels like there's bodies on the floor pretty much the whole game. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm excited to watch this one play out. If you had to fill it out right now, you are you thinking Celtics Warriors in the finals? Yeah, I think I think I would go Celtics over Warriors at this point. I think I need to see Game Four of the Celtics series to really, well, like we were talking about. To me, that the Celtics show a lack of maturity at times because you just tied it up one one, stealing a game in Miami. If there was ever a time to come out in play at the highest level it was game three you up 2-1 with the next game at home so that was that was discouraging to see them play as poorly as they did um so i need to see how they come out in game four but yeah obviously i think the celtics and warriors um are going to be i would pick them to be in the finals but i don't know i don't know which way i'm leaning right now it'll be interesting to see um and it really comes down to i think how well how well tatum and brown play going forward they have to be the best players in, in this series and in the Warriors series if or in the finals if they want to win. Yeah, if Butler continues to outplay Tatum, the Celtics are in trouble. Yeah. Well, I, yeah, and hopefully I don't want him to be injured necessarily, but you know, hopefully he's able to come back and play and, and at least yeah. be a factor. All right. Um, any more thoughts on the playoffs uh, going forward as we, as we currently have them constructed? No, I think, I think I'm good. Let's see, so yeah, the Warriors up 2-0 right now in their series. Um, obviously, Mavericks had a great run, but it looks like they're probably going to end up. They're down nine right now in the fourth, so looking to go probably go down three nothing. So it looks like the Warriors will have that series. Well, obviously, probably hopefully you get to talk about the finals coming up more. Um, I don't know. It'd be interesting to see how it plays out. Like you said, it's interesting this season because it seems like none of the four teams really had the finals makeup. But then again, did any team? I don't really know. It just this. It always. I didn't think that last year either. And then the Bucks seemed like a worthy champion. And I think that's how we're going to look at the Bucks or the. Or I mean, or the the Celtics or the Warriors or the Heat this year. Uh, you know, they played well enough to win the finals. Uh, the other big thing that happened recently is is the NBA draft lottery. And I know Sully is a lot more excited about this than I am because my team. Uh, I went to win the finals, not the the draft lottery, but um, the you know it was it that's always become one of the most exciting times of year because you have this you know uncertainty of we could get the number one pick, we could set up our franchise for the future. I'll just kind of let you talk about what you saw. Obviously, 
you're a Thunder fan and getting the number two pick. There's two ways of thought to look at that for me is that, oh, we were one way away from the number one, but then also we have the number two pick, and this is a good draft for that. So what are your thoughts on how the lottery played out as a Thunder fan and also just overall? Yeah, so it was funny. I was watching this with one of my best friends from high school who is an Orlando Magic fan. So we were just going crazy because obviously the Magic end up with the number one pick, the Thunder end up with the number two pick. So I was happy for him. I was willing to sacrifice being number two. Um, I'll take that. We have the extra pick at number 12, so I guess it's fair. Um, but yeah, really, my biggest concern, obviously, I mean, the Thunder could have fallen anywhere. They could have fallen to eighth. So to be even in, the, I think top three is kind of what everybody in the, in the top five or six was hoping for this year, because um, that's kind of how most people see the draft is that they see it as that top, those top three guys. And then after that, a little bit of a drop off. So really excited to be up there. I think it's really interesting. And with these top three guys, opinions are very different. And so this order to me does not feel set in stone at, at any point. I, I think you could see the Rockets, you know, if the Rockets love, I don't know, Jabari Smith, and they think the Magic are going to take him, but the Magic are comfortable with taking Paolo at three, I think there's great potential for trade-ups at, at the top of the draft, especially if teams get intel on each other, which is also going to be curious to follow because – the Thunder are probably the most secretive organization in the entire NBA. I mean, no one had any idea they were drafting Giddy last year at six, even though Giddy made perfect sense. And looking back in hindsight was the obvious Sam Presti selection. So there, the Intel is going to be very interesting to follow teams like the Kings teams, like the trailblazers. Um, those are the teams I would be looking at in the top 10 as well as the most likely to move because um, the Kings are just ridiculous and do crazy things all the time. And the Trailblazers are a team that are looking to win now and try to build around Dame. So those are the teams I would look at right now and say like they, they have potential to um, move those picks, move up, move down, um, and we'll see what happens with them. Yeah, the Thunder should be ecstatic. Any of those teams, like you said, in the top three, because you know Bancaro, Smith, Holmgren, um, we've talked about them already on this podcast, are all franchise potential changing players. Um, but I really feel bad for the Kings because <laughs> – they need a guy to come in and change that culture. They really do. And I don't know if necessarily any of those three, you can say for sure, are going to do that, but at least they'd give you a chance. And I don't really know who in that next group you take and you're like, man, this is going to be, I know this is going to be a home run pick. So I'd definitely be looking for them, you know, to potentially move up. Um, you know, but also, you know, there's some other teams as well who were a little disappointed. I know Portland at seven was, they were, you know, you saw Lillard's reaction and he was a little disappointed as well. Yeah. That made me happy. Yeah. I mean, so I don't know, you know, did, do you think that Thunder and the Magic obviously were the biggest winners of this draft and, and who should be disappointed and, and what's the course of action for, you know, teams that may be outside the top three? Is it worth, you know, settling and, and picking one of those players? Yeah, I will say I think, not that a lottery is ever really fair, but the teams that got jobbed a little bit, like the I feel like the Pistons are the biggest loser, right? Clearly, I mean, they were they were in the top three, they fall out. They're the only team that was up that high that didn't end up with a top three pick. But they won the lottery last year. They got Cade Cunningham last year. Like, if you were to tell them two years ago, okay, you get the number one pick in 2021, but you get the number five pick in 2022 – they're making that deal every single time. Just like if you told Thunder fans last year, like, hey, you're going to get the number six pick last year, but hey, you'll get the number two pick next year. Like, it seems like it worked out pretty evenly for a lot of these rebuilding teams in terms of a lot of these teams are getting swings um, at top-end talent. Um, and there's some teams, you know, the 
the Rockets, for example, they they took Green last year. They're going to get another chance to select a top three guy. Um, so yeah, I was um, overall. I think it, it turned out pretty well. I think I'm excited with how it shaked out because I think there could be some movement, which is always interesting to follow. Um, and this year, more than more than any, I think the grades are going to differ a lot on these guys. And you know, we'll get it even towards the top of the draft. I I don't think there's much separation between a lot of these guys, and we'll talk about that as we. Um, as we get into these players, but um, there's going to be different grades on these guys, different evaluations. And I think that could cause a lot of movement. I don't, there is something I don't envy the magic for. And obviously you want the number one pick. You always want the number one pick in my opinion, but because of the way this draft is, we've talked about those top three guys. Any of them could go number one. You can make an argument for them. They're always going to be compared to each other. They're always going to be compared to, well, he should have gone above them, you know, so looking at it, you know, as a Thunder fan, are you happy with any of those three guys? Can Or is there someone in particular that you want or, you know, think would be a fit? Or, you know, how are you viewing these three? Or is it more of these, like, any of these three guys could go to any of those teams? Yeah. So later in this podcast, obviously, we're going to start going through um, my draft rankings. I won't spoil the top. I'll leave it up to question. I will say I think the – when you look at the type of player the Thunder target and the checklist that they look at, like generally I think the things you look for are positional versatility, like high IQ, um, a guy that can do a lot of different things offensively, um, a guy that's very skilled. And so when I think when I, when you start to piece those things together, it does seem like Chet would be the guy that they would value the most. But I think there's also a case that they look at Jabari who might be the most, um, the most like a, the the with the lowest ceiling, which sounds weird because I think he could still be a very good player out of the three. But you look at him next to Giddy and Shea and say, if those guys can create open shots for Jabari Smith, I mean, if he shoots, he's going to shoot forty percent from three for his career. Like that's that's just as valuable as having an elite shot blocker, rim protector, and the other things Chet provides. And then Paolo provides the playmaking upside that I'm not sure the other um, the other two provide in terms of working in the post and passing out to shooters. So. I I, th- I really think you can make a case for all these guys, um, which is why I think it's going to be so interesting to follow as we lead up to the draft because you've already started to see some smoke screens come out. You know, I've already seen like, oh, the Magic love Chet Holmgren, but actually they like Jabari Smith. You know, the Magic are going to have to try to do their best to convince the teams at number two and number three that they're going to take whoever they like yeah. because, the, you know, the ideal situation is the Fultz-Tatum scenario where you're the Celtics, you have the number one pick, you trade down to three and you still get the best player in the draft. So, That'll be interesting to follow. You know, Presti is a guy that his board doesn't usually match consensus for better or for worse. And for most of his career, it's been for better. But, you know, would it stun me if he had a guy outside of the consensus top three and his top three? Like, not at all. I mean, when he took Westbrook at four, that was not consensus whatsoever. When he took Harden at three, same thing. So he's been willing to take risks in the past. And um, it wouldn't surprise me if, you know, if he loves – one of these guys in four in the four through seven range, if you know the Kings are looking to trade up or one of those more aggressive teams, like trading back, I think is a real possibility as well. Yeah, that'd be super interesting because I I do think these three guys, I you know you never know with a guy coming out of college or entering the league, but they're all guys that I think are worth taking. You know, but like you said, what's interesting is that yes, all these all three guys are very different in a way, but at the same time, there's a lot of the same qualities. You mentioned positional versatility. I think all of those guys, you could argue, have positional versatility. 
you know, they all have shot making ability. They all can play defense. So there's, they all kind of fit a need for every team, I think. And so that's what makes it so interesting is that you, I think, could pick any of them and be make an argument for this was the right pick. And that's what's going to be hard. It's like, well, yeah. why did we make this pick? And then when it doesn't or does pan out, that's always going to be compared to the team that got it right or did. Yeah, definitely. I, I think there <laughs> – there would be so many scenarios with when the Thunder finished this draft that I would just be like, yeah, okay, I see what Presty was thinking there. Like yeah. that makes sense. Even if you know, it might not have been exactly what I would do, but like I under, I perfectly understand the reasoning. Like I, I I think that's definitely valid. I think because the Thunder have the I mean to, to talk about the Thunder really quickly, I think because they have the pick at twelve, I, I don't I don't know why you wouldn't at least take a shot at one of those three. I you know I I don't see them trading out. Because if you really like one of those guys at in the middle, then you have the 12th pick. So, you know, I think they could use yeah. that. The question is just like, you know, Ivy and Sharp are the two bigger swings. Like, if he absolutely loves one of those guys and he knows he can get them at four, like, he is the type of guy where he would just take the extra asset. Yeah. Like, do I think that he, they, do I think he definitely has Ivy or Sharp higher? Like, probably not. But um, he, he would be the guy to just say, like, you know, a lot of GMs would just make the safe pick to save their job. Like, he's the least concerned about that of anybody in the league. Yeah. The lottery in general, I think, has become really good for the sport. Uh, You know, we talk about that it's become a spectacle. I think it's always good to keep something, you know, to have something to talk about for the bad teams. Um, So, but you don't want to be in the draft lottery too long either. And I think that's the interesting part of this is that, at what point do the Thunder start translating these lottery picks, the Pistons, you know, whoever you want to put in, into actual winning games? I mean, so that's that's the last question I guess we, we'll need to talk about with some of these teams. I think the Rockets are still a couple of years away for sure. Um, you know, the Magic as well. But how soon are you expecting the Thunder to, to actually make these, these picks, these assets into reality of, of winning games? Yeah, what what's funny is that the Thunder have only missed the playoffs two years in a row, and it feels like it's been like five, I think, to most people. But it's only been two seasons since they had Chris Paul and took the Rockets to seven in the first round of the playoffs. But yeah, to answer your question, I think this year, depending on the guy they take and depending on how great that guy is in his first season, um, maybe there's an outside chance in which they start to push more towards the play in this year and start to be more aggressive I think what's most likely is that they end up probably around the fifth or sixth worst record next year. Um, They're in a similar position where they have a shot to move up. They get one more guy in the lottery, and then it's go time. Um, That's going to be a point where Giddy will be in his third year. Whoever this guy they draft this year will be in his second year, and that's usually the time for the biggest jump in development for these guys. So to me, it feels like one more year. Uh, which is really exciting because when you start this rebuild, you really have no idea if you're ever going to hit in the lottery and how long this could possibly take. Um, so just to get one, a top pick this early on feels like, you know, it's still not going to be instant. It's going to take time, but you see the pathway forward into how this can become a great team. Yeah, and last year's last year's draft, I think, is looking really good for everybody. Like I, I think all those top teams, for the most part, have to be pretty happy with how everything turned out. So that'll be interesting to see, you know, as we continue to go forward, is how these teams who are picking early continue to make that jump. But 
really interesting. I like the, the NBA draft lottery a lot, and, and I think, you know, it'll be it'll be interesting to see what happens in the draft. We're speaking of, we're going to go ahead and start um, to talk about those players that are going to be in the upcoming draft. Uh, our in-house draft analyst, Andrew Sullivan, has a big board for himself that we're going to talk about here in a minute. Obviously, it's a lot of this is projections. A lot of this is thinking about what it could happen, what is, you know, what we expect. But, um, you know, I think like, like you can put, translate this to any sport. You look for certain things. You look for certain intangibles that players have. And like we've, you've already mentioned it when we talk about the playoffs is, is, you know, teams look for certain players that have a lot of upside that have, you know, you look for big swing picks or you look for guys who are NBA ready. You know, when it comes to, to slotting these players before we get into them, you know, what do you value more? You know, do you value more of that upside or more of those guys who are NBA ready? Yeah, I think early on, I definitely am an upside person. I I would prefer to take the big swing. Um, we You know, we already talked about, especially with Memphis, how that, that strategy is how you can really raise your ceiling as a team. But as you get later in the draft, I really don't have a big preference. Like I think if you can find somebody you think is going to be good in the 20s, I don't care how old they are, just take them because most of the guys in the 20s just aren't going to turn out to be very good. So early on, I would side on the let's take a swing, let's try to hit a home run because especially with the way the lottery functions, you don't know how often you're going to be back up there again to have a chance to get a home run talent. But later on in the draft, like – it doesn't matter, man. If you find a good player in the twenties, I don't care if he's a role player or a good starter. Like you still did your job. Yeah, exactly. And you know, you never know when you're going to find that Jordan Poole, right? You never know when you're going to find a guy who you, who ends up, you know, developing that talent into the next level. So starting today, we're gonna, you know, we'll, we'll kind of work our way up to the NBA draft, kind of do like we did last year, where we, you know, eventually talk about who is picked and who our top guys are. But so he has. 35 top guys we're going to talk about 35 through 26 today and like you said there are some of those guys on this list that even me you know doing research I didn't really know much about uh, I had to watch their games kind of had to research them and they can end up being successful players in this league so some of the some of these names uh, just a disclaimer some of these names you probably won't recognize some you will some you may and you may not care in general because there are 35 through 26 so if you want to turn the podcast episode off I guess now would be the good time <laughs> But we're going to go through them because I think there's some interesting players to talk about here. Um, and you might hear a name that you think is already playing in the, the league and has won two straight MVPs, but he actually isn't. And we'll talk about – that's a little tease for, for one of the players we're going to talk about. But let's start – you know, I'll let you start wherever you want, I, obviously with 35, but give a little, you know, uh, I guess prerequisite to what we're going to what we're going to talk about tonight. Yeah, and I mean, I'll preface this like – I'm not an expert. I just like doing this. Like I just enjoy watching these guys and kind of formulating opinions. So uh, if you're really into this, I would encourage like seeking out other um, opinions like Sam Vecini from The Athletic, Kevin O'Connor from The Ringer, a couple, uh, Mike Schmitz from ESPN. Those are all guys that are, do a pretty good job and guys that I'll um, listen to or um, take take p- bits and pieces from. But yeah, I to to give you kind of an outline, like with, with all these guys, I've um, – I've got a few like strengths and weaknesses listed for each of them that I'll kind of go through before we get into like the full description, just because I think that'll make it a little easier to kind of understand the type of player we're looking at. And then I'll kind of dive into more of a um, specific description. But yeah, with, with number 35 to start off, I have Terquavian Smith out of um, NC state. He's a six, four kind of combo guard. He's only 160 pounds. Um, 
he's a little bit on the older side, but not not a super old prospect. And I think what you're looking at with him and what you're hoping translates to the next level is the shot creation, the quickness, and especially the pull-up jumper. And the things you hope to improve on are definitely his, his efficiency is not great. His shot selection is not great. And you already heard me say he's 160 pounds. So that's just like, that has to get better. If he wants to turn into a good NBA player, he's going to have to get way stronger. But the strength for him is the pull-up jumper. I think when I when I watched him, it reminded me of last year, all, all the talk about Trey Mann's step-back three. It was like, this one tool is so good that it's probably going to get him drafted by itself just because it's 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 so elite that you hope it develops. And he's got a high release. He can get a shot off against pretty much anybody. And he also has the speed and the shiftiness to get those shots off. But He's not efficient from two whatsoever. Like it, it, those shots were just completely unhelpful to his offense at the collegiate level, and his playmaking and defense both need to improve. Um, to me, this feels like a guy that needs time in the G League to continue to hone his craft and especially to build his frame. And I think maybe not playing as hectic of an 82 game season would give him more of an opportunity to do that. Um, one guy he reminded me of a little bit was like Shake Milton, where it's kind of this combo guard scoring threat. Um, I think that's kind of what you're looking at with him, but he definitely has a lot of things to improve on before he um, can sniff that potential. Yeah, I really like that you, obviously you could have gone with anybody, but you know, I, I didn't know him on it, to be completely honest with you, but watching his highlights, he, like you said, he, he, he was in college at NC State and in some of those threes that he was making, I was like, man, these are NBA level threes. Like there are prospects in the NBA right now who are players who cannot make those shots. Like he'll pull up, you know, off balance with his feet, you know, off centered and, and his stroke is really good as well. So he has that ability. But like you said, also, he's really skinny. You could tell he did not like contact. And even when he did drive and make a floater, it was like, man, I really don't want to shoot this floater, but I guess I kind of just have to. Yeah. And so that's going to have to change. But, but I, like you said, I was really impressed with, obviously I didn't watch it. You only see his good highlights. You know, they don't show the, the bad things in, in his highlight tape, but he, ne- he seems to be really good at setting himself for open threes and he can make off off platform threes as well. And that's the skill you look for in the NBA. You look for traits that translate. And making open threes, making open shots is something that's always going to be, you know, especially in this this day and age, good in the NBA. So, yeah, I, I like him and players like that who are really good at, at one thing. And we're seeing those 3 and D guys, which I don't know how well he can play three, but he can definitely shoot. So those types of players can make it in the NBA. Yeah, definitely. I think you you hit especially well on like the the physicality part. Like, um, he he's gonna have to embrace that a little more and just add to his frame as well. But yeah, I think you hit on that well. So, yeah, moving on to number thirty four. Um, I have a guy that this is a guy that's risen up draft boards recently. Like some people have him in the twenties. Um, I'm not as high on him, but it's Bryce McGowan's out of Nebraska. Um, he's six seven. He's about one hundred eighty pounds. Um, he's also a little on the older side, but he's very long. Um, athletic. He's he's mainly a shot creator, similar to Terquavion Smith. Um, honestly, I think Jordan Poole might have single handedly boosted this guy's stock like five or ten sp- spots in this year's draft because when you watch him, there's definitely a little bit of that in him with the frame, uh, the quickness, especially, and um, the focus on creating shots. But um, he's he's also not very strong. His left hand seems pretty weak, and the playmaking and the shot selection, just like with Terquavion Smith. Um, both have to improve. So, what like comparing these two guys? Obviously, the reason I have Bryce McGowan's higher is he's 
three inches taller and stronger and seems a little more athletic to me as well. Um, but just like Smith, he's got questions about his efficiency and his ability to function within an offense. It seemed like he struggled to kind of find um, the best way for him to um, fit in with Nebraska's offense. And he takes poor shots often, uh, but he has this unique ability. He can get to his jumper. He can be creative at the rim and finishing um, in awkward ways. And I do see a passing foundation to where I think there's a chance he can improve upon that at the next level. Um, I'm not going to pretend like this guy is Jordan Poole and act like that he's going to be the next steal of the first round. Um, but he did shoot it well from the free throw line, so maybe that shooting develops at the next level. But yeah, I, I'm a little lower on him than some other people, but I definitely see the flashes as to why people are excited. Yeah, watching, I'm actually, just to remind myself, watching a couple of his highlights as you're talking, um, he's kind of the inverse of, of Smith in that he, he likes to get to the rim. Like, that's his goal. It's almost like the jumper is an afterthought, but he does have, you know, decent form. Watching him, he kind of reminds me, this is not an exact comp because he doesn't play defense, I don't think, like him, but he looks like DeJounte Murray. He's got that, like, skinny frame, that long, yeah. like, pogo stick arms that can just reach out and get to the rim. That's kind of, like, his goal is, is to come off really hard downhill and get to the rim. So that's kind of an interesting, you know, position because that's harder in the NBA to do than at the college level. Um, but like you said, the upside there is definitely – he was a highly touted prospect out of, coming out of high school. Um, so the upside is definitely there with him. Yeah. All right, moving on to number 33, and this is probably one of the names that a lot of people are going to recognize more so than others, is EJ Liddell. And I'll preface this by saying I'm definitely lower on him um, than most people, and I'll explain why. But some of his strengths are definitely you know strength, physicality, and his defense – um, along with his post finishing, his shot blocking, and he, he is a good shooter. I think um, all the other traits I listed don't sound like he would also be a great shooter, but he can shoot the ball well. Um, I, I would say his weaknesses are more speed, um, verticality, his handle, and playmaking. Um, but yeah, he's he's got great rim protection skills, and I think he can comp compete down low. Um, he improved over the course of his college career, and I think that offers promise at the next level that this is a guy that's still on an upward trajectory. Um, it doesn't seem like he's fully capped out yet. Um, he also has great rebounding and block rates for a guy that's only six foot seven. Um, but my concern with him is that I don't know what his upside is because I don't see, even at the collegiate level, him creating space for his jumpers at all. Like Even the shots he hits feel very heavily contested, and when you're facing guys in the NBA that are just as long and just as strong as you, I'm a little concerned about his ability to get those off consistently um, and how that affects his ability to finish at the rim. He will be a good piece defensively. He's very physically strong. Um, he probably won't be able to cover super athletic wings, but I don't really think that's what you're picking him up to do anyways. Um, but his frame, his shooting ability, and his rim protection skills, I think, provide a solid floor for a team looking for um, one of these undersized big men that can play a few different roles. Um, but I would be concerned about his offensive role other than maybe just being a spot-up three-point shooter because he doesn't have great playmaking skills, and I'm a little concerned about his ability to score in terms of what he did at the collegiate level and how that translates um, to the NBA level. Yeah. I don't want to, you know, obviously you know, take a lot of time on every player, um, but my, my one question with him would be, you know what? What is what's his position in the NBA? Because he's one of those guys. Who, there's a there are always those players who you're like, man, that's just he's a college guy. And to me, that's EJ Liddell. Is he's an undersized, really forward. 
He doesn't. He can't play guard. And so in the college, he's perfect because he's super skilled, super fundamental, and he's athletic and physical enough to kind of be the best player on the floor at times. But in the NBA, what's like you said, what's the ceiling there, and what position do you trust him to be a, a starter? I, mean, I don't know about that. So it's like what what would he be able to do really? that separates him from other guys in the NBA. And that's that's where I would struggle with him. But like you said, the skills are there enough to definitely be an impact player if if the if off the bench at least, you know, if nothing else. Yeah. It's a little I see a little Grant Williams in him, but I don't see the same like defensive versatility and athleticism that he has. But I see a little bit of that in him, so maybe maybe that's something that works out for him at the next level, yeah. but we'll see. And quickly, so number, you know, quickly to make the, this point, though, as we're going through these guys, especially 35 to 26, I like that you brought up Grant Williams because not everybody has to be a superstar. Not like not every pick has to be like, oh, this guy is the next cornerstone of our team. Like There are some guys who are okay to be role players. Grant Williams is a perfect example. You never You never expected him to be – even like an all-star level player, but he's going to make good money in, if in the next year or so because of the role that he plays. So that's just a good thing to keep in mind is that you can draft just to be a good role player. Yeah. And I definitely think Liddell will get taken higher than I have him listed just because of that. Like yeah. I think a team is going to see him and say, he fits what we're looking for. He can play this role well. Um, all right. So number 32 is um, a guy to Duke that probably more of people will recognize. It's Wendell Moore. He's kind of, in between a guard and a forward, plays a little of both. I would say his strengths are definitely his defense, his shooting. I think he's strong in the paint, and he's also pretty lengthy. Um, the weaknesses are, to me, are the playmaking, and I don't think he has great speed um, for for a guy that plays a little bit of guard. But he, to me, is one of the more prototypical three and D guys in this draft. And a team that at the end of the first round is probably going to look for those type of skills. Um, he kind of had to do a little bit of everything at college obviously he was not the main main person in that offense there were a lot of guys at Duke that got prioritized over him like Paolo AJ Griffin even Mark Williams Um, so I think he already has kind of had to learn how to function in a specified role rather than just you know some of these other guys we've talked about Terquavion Smith Bryce McGowan's they kind of just did whatever they wanted that's not what Wendell Moore had to do at the collegiate level He's strong. He can play with contact, but he doesn't have great ability to get around defenders. Um, and I do think his jumper is a little slow to get up. So I think that's something he'll need to improve if he wants to become a knockdown three-point shooter at the NBA level. Uh, but he, I think he has a great wingspan, which should help him um, both offensively and defensively. And I think um, his passing ability is is solid and has some room to improve as well. Um, so this, this to me is a perfect pick for a team at the end of the first round that's just looking to add... Um, defense and shooting and I've seen enough flashes with him in terms of his playmaking and other skills that maybe there's a little bit of hidden upside in there but this to me feels like a pretty safe you know we know what we're getting kind of pick yeah yeah I would say with him is that I, you know he he's a perfect role player he's he already doesn't I think he knows he doesn't need to be the superstar and so he knows what he need, he would be okay with you know taking a lesser role for a team um and like I just said, that that's fine. So yeah, I think Wendell Moore is it would be a great pick in the later rounds, and I, I could see him being one of those guys who he doesn't have a super high ceiling, so he could contribute, you know, right away and and stay at that level for a long time. Yeah. All right, number thirty-one. This might be the first one that uh, EJ Liddell might have surprised some people, but this might be the first one that um, 
has people surprised. Walker Kessler is my number 31 overall player. Um, I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with him. Obviously, huge seven-footer, amazing shot blocker. He he probably, it, it's him or Chet in, in terms of best shot blocker in the draft. Kessler is probably more prolific. I think Chet has maybe a little bit higher defensive IQ, but Kessler's ability to just go up and get any shot is as good any, as any player in this draft. Um, he can score in the paint pretty easily. He's uh, obviously 7-1, so he uses his frame well. Um, but the concerns, and they're big concerns, because just like his elite skills, he has high weaknesses as well, are the mobility and then uh, also the shooting. Um, he is a phenom shot blocker. I mean, he's elite. It's as good as you'll see. But he, he just, I don't know if he'll be able to stay on the court period. Like that's just, that's the question. Can he stay on the court both defensively and offensively? Um, he can't really move his feet and it struggles to stay with quicker guards. He, he, he hasn't shot from the outside. I mean, there's, there's some people that think like he shot it pretty well in high school, but just didn't at, at college at all. I'm not going to bet on that translating to the NBA, but I wouldn't say it's impossible. Um, so it feels to me like his offensive role is very limited. Honestly, if Utah keeps Rudy Gobert, I would kind of like Utah to take him maybe late in the first round because you just get the similar type of player um, to fit in behind him, and you you would be able to play a very similar style both offensively and defensively with him. But there are going to be games when he straight up played off the floor, and we saw that in the NCAA tournament. I mean, the, the last game he played, Miami, he played 13 minutes. Like he he had no impact on the game because Miami was able to get the game turned into chaos, and it was such a fast pace he just couldn't keep up. Um, the one reason I think for optimism is that he has some passing upside that could allow him to contribute offensively um, outside of the paint, maybe in the high post as a screener and a pick and pop guy. So if the shooting does develop, I, I think he probably finds a spot in the NBA. But I have a lot of questions about um, him being able to stay on the court. If he can, the shot blocking is going to translate, no doubt. Yeah, with him, it's it's the the, the question of the modern game and how many times in a series in a in the regular season is he going to be taken off the floor and i don't know if he has the ability to to tra- to to grow into a point to where he's not ever going to be able to stay on the floor you know against really good teams that take advantage of that speed or you know his lack of so i don't know then it's tough with players like him because it's like you know what you're getting you know what's good, but you also know the flaws. So, it, you know, it, you got to pick your poison there. Yeah. And it, last thing I'll add, it's a little concerning because the teams that are going to be adding him, I mean, he's going to be a late first-round pick. Those are the teams that are in the playoffs. Yeah. Like they don't they don't have the flexibility to mess around with you for a couple of years. Like, you're going to – if you can't play in the playoffs, what value do you have to those elite teams? So, yeah, I'll be interested to see where he ends up going. And number 30 um, is another big man out of Arizona. It's Christian Coloco. Um his strengths, similar to Kessler, are his length, his rim protection, and his play finishing. Similar to Kessler, his weaknesses are perimeter skills and his shooting. Um, I think Coloco is a guy, he, he picked up basketball at a very late age. I think it was 15 or 16 when he first started playing basketball. And you really see that in the progression he made at Arizona. Um, his role increased every year he played there, and just his overall basketball IQ did as well. Um, he hustles very hard. Um, it may, he makes it very difficult for anybody to finish around him at the rim, and he has the quickness to me to hang with faster guards. And that, to me, is the difference between Kessler and Coloco. Is I, I see Coloco having the foot speed to be able to hang with some more athletic perimeter players compared to Kessler. 
the other encouraging sign to me is his two-point percentage has jumped significantly each season over the last three, which indicates to me that he's becoming a lot better finisher and becoming more comfortable around the rim. Um, and he does shoot it well from the free throw line, so I think there's a chance that he does shoot it pretty decently, at least from the mid-range at the NBA level. Um, I think he comes in and plays more of a JaVale McGee role, you know, just a, a screener, rim runner, um, shot blocker type of guy, and then maybe has potential to um, to add to that later on. Um, but yeah, I think this is a guy I'll be interested to follow because he picked up basketball so late that we really don't know if he's done growing yet. Or, like, we don't know what his skill set will end up being. Yeah, yeah, he impressed me in the NCAA tournament at times, and he is so, you know, physically imposing. But I will say one thing that I think we noticed watching is that he he needs to get a little bit stronger rebounding. He, he's got to get a little bit more physical for the size that he is. So, you know, like you said, I think part of that is just coming into the game late, and you will have to develop that. Yeah, he doesn't have a great second bounce either, so I don't know that he'll be an elite rebounder in the NBA, but obviously he's 7-1, so yeah. he's going to bring in at least a few. Um, all right, so number 29, and this is the guy you mentioned at the beginning, um, it's Nikola Jovic, not Jokic, Jovic. Um, this is a Euro, kind of, I guess he's a guard, forward, he's six foot ten, but he has a lot of ball skills, and um, he, he's more of a playmaker than he is a play finisher. Um, he's, he's very young. Um, he played on a team that looks like they play in middle school gyms, but it is what it is. Um, his strengths are definitely his passing, his handle. Um, he's just a Euro type of player. I mean, he he's smart, great IQ. Uh, he can run the pick and roll very well, but he is not physical whatsoever. He has, I'm not sure what his defensive versatility looks like. And I, he also struggles to finish at the rim. So this to me is a guy that has more upside at the end of the first round. Um, I could see a team taking a swing on him um, a little bit earlier in the first round if they really like his playmaking skills. Um, because he, I think he does have hope to develop as a shooter as well. And he developed these guard skills before he ended up hitting this massive growth spurt. And you can really see that he's more comfortable playing as a guard still. Um, but he's going to have to find a way to stay on the floor defensively. He's, I mean, he's either going to have to add weight or just get faster. One of the two, like he's either going to have to be able to hang with quicker guards or guard fours. To me, that those are really the only um, two paths to him being a decent defender at least. Um, but yeah, he's going to have to learn to play through contact as well. But he, he is an elite passer. He sees the floor at a high level. So a team that's looking for that at the end of the first round, I think it makes sense to take the swing, even though there's definitely going to be a lot of things you're going to have to work on with him in the first couple of years. Yeah, I also one thing I noticed watching this tape is that I was impressed by by his shooting as well. He's a good seemingly catch and shoot shooter. Um, so I, you know he's not Nikola Jokic, but obviously he looks more like a you know a Danilo Gallinari, if you will, Davis Bertans yeah. type of guy. But yeah, like you said. I don't. He he definitely looked a little slow at times. You know what it, could he do defensively? But like I said, with, with, with the the range that we're talking about, these guys, you don't necessarily have to be able to do everything. So he his skill set definitely looked like something that could translate to the NBA with his shot, with his with his good shooting and his ability to to, to play makes. So like you said, yeah, I I definitely think that he would be an interesting prospect. Yeah, and that's the tough thing with all these guys. There's just so many question marks. It's like. You just have to get, I, I think it's so important to get these guys, these teams have to get these guys um, in meetings, learn their personalities, and also just get them in workouts and really understand what they think they can develop because all these guys have questions, all these guys have strengths, and it's, re it's really tough to evaluate that. 
Uh, all right, so the next two guys, I kind of want to pair these guys together because I think they are very similar players. Um, number 28, I have Blake Wesley. He's um, a six foot five um, guard. He's about 180 pounds. He's super young. And then the other guy, number 27 I have, is Jaden Hardy. He's 6'4", about 200 pounds. Um, they're both shot-creating guards. Um, this is probably a little lower than most people have Blake Wesley, um, but both of these guys are very similar. They're shot creators first. They love to score. Um, they're very athletic, but they're not particularly efficient. I wouldn't say they're e either of them are great passers yet, um, and they both have to improve their efficiency and their defense in order to excel at the next level. Um, Wesley first. He he was more of a late riser. Um, teams are definitely excited about his ability to create space, get to the rim. Um, he generated a lot of offense, even if it wasn't particularly efficient, but especially in open space and transition, I think he could excel. So those are the kind of teams I think that should be looking at him or teams that like to get out and run because that's when you see him really flash is um, out in transition. But he's going to have to improve as a shooter to really be respected at the NBA level and also improve his defensive focus. Hardy is kind of the flip side of that. Hardy was a super highly rated recruit and then went to the G League Ignite and struggled a little bit. He wasn't efficient whatsoever. I mean, his shooting numbers are pretty bad, um, which is not great when your strength is shot creating, but he does have a strong frame. He's very quick. He gets around screens quickly. Um, his shot doesn't look as bad as the numbers say, um, and he did shoot 36% off the catch from three, so I think if you can start to decrease the difficulty of those shots he's taking, maybe, um, maybe you see a little more upside there as a shooter, um, but I do see passing vision from him, even if it doesn't always um, turn into a bucket. Um, he also has concerns defensively in terms of focus and IQ. Sometimes, I mean, there are a couple times I watched him, he doesn't even really get into a defensive stance, which is obviously not not great from a prospect. Um, I, I think I'd still take a swing on him in the late first, but to me, you have to get him in for a workout and figure out if he can actually shoot or not, because if he can't, I, I don't really know what his role is. Yeah, both those guys watching their tape, but are super athletic and like every highlight Blake Wesley had is you know getting in the passing lane he's got super long arms you know he, he's going to be able to get out and run get out on the break so very valuable there Hardy kind of the same thing you know he's very athletic can finish at the rim but like you said in the NBA that's not enough you know you have to be polished it's not AAU basketball you have to have some sort of skill set where that can translate and from what I saw you know like you said very inefficient at times for both of them both have what seems like a an ability to shoot and have good form so it's there it's just going to be you know like you said who can translate who can actually you know prove that they have what it takes to grow in I liked what I saw from Blake Wesley and at the end of the year I out of those two guys I haven't seen enough of Hardy but I I definitely think Wesley has the ability to translate into a good player if he grows correctly, and and, then, and that's for both of them. And that's what's so hard about these players, like you're saying, is that there's a reason they're at this point in the draft is it's all about upside. Yeah, definitely. And all right, this is we said we go to 26, right? So yeah. this is the, the last one. So this is a guy I think is a fun player to watch. He's a little bit of a pleasant surprise um, for me. Is Jake LaRavia out of Wake Forest. So he is kind of a weird frame. He's like 6'8", 230. Um, he's one of the oldest players in the draft, so this is a this is a player for a team that's looking to win now. But his strength or his, his playmaking, his shooting, and also his size, um, and he his weakness is he's he's just slow. He he just can't move very quickly. Um, he's he's more of a big guard almost, but he's very skilled. He I think he moves well within an offense. He can playmake well. Um, he reminds me a little 
of Bogdanovich from the Jazz um, in terms of the role he would play as more of a secondary playmaker, but also a good shooter. Um, he can use his size to score in the paint, and defensively, he does hang pretty well against larger forwards, so he's kind of one of these guys that is going to play a different position defensively than he does offensively. Um, obviously, the main concern is the foot speed. He can't really guard quicker guards because of it, um, so you're going to have to kind of your defensive game plan, I think, is going to have to be worked around him in order for him to be effective. But I think he can be a really solid shooter, and he's a smart enough guy that offensively I think it will work for him. Um, so he's going to be a guy that, you know, certain matchups are probably not going to work out as well for him. But the Bogdanovich type of role seems one that would make sense for him. Um, and if he can defend bigger forwards, I think he has a chance to be a really good NBA player. Yeah, he, he was interesting to watch as well. Like I said, I don't really know much about him either, but, you know, I heard him, his name a little bit, you know, considering when thinking about Wake Forest. But, um, yeah, he, he has the ability to score at multiple levels, and he had a good post game as well that impressed me. So that's yeah. a little bit different than I think Bogdanovich. Well, he, he can't post up, but he's looking to actually finish at the rim off of that post up more so than like fadeaway jumper. Um, but yeah, he's an interesting guy because like you said, super skilled. So a team later in the, in the first round that, like you said, is picking to win now, they're going to like a guy like him a lot. And that's what you're looking for in general is, is a role player who can come in and, and score, um, or play defense. And so, yeah, I think he could definitely provide that for it, for a team. Yeah. I, for most guys, I didn't really give team fits, but when watching him, I just, the Lakers just make sense, dude. Like I, I don't know if they'll. I don't even think they have a first round pick. Like I don't know what they would have to give up to to maybe move into the later into the first round or early in the second. But another one of those like smart guys can play make a little. You know they have good rim protection with Davis already. He feels like one of those guys that maybe could help their offense just function at a higher level next year and be one of those kind of connective tissue pieces. Yeah, interesting. And that's what's so interesting about those type of players is a lot of times. They're not going to be superstars, so it's just what fit can they have with the team. And that's where you're seeing guys like Jordan Poole really take off or Grant Williams even. You know, those guys have to find a team that they can really have a good role on. And that's what we're looking for here with the guys we're breaking down. Yeah, definitely. And the last thing I'll add in this year's class, most experts have considered this year's class to be about as flat as any draft class in recent history, meaning like, the difference between the 35th best player and the 26th best player, most people don't consider it to be very much. And I tend to agree with that. Like it, it would not surprise me at all if Bryce McGowan's weight is better than Jake LaRavia, you know, or, or whoever Walker Kessler is way better than Jaden Hardy. Like the gap between a lot of these guys is not very much. And so like you mentioned, team fit is going to be very important. I think we're going to see more and more of that as, as we go along, because just the way basketball is now with, having to be able to do everything on the floor, you're kind of seeing a flattening of the curve, if you will, of every position. So there's not much separation between even, I mean, you think about like, I mean, what Laravia is what, like a six nine, six ten, you know, white dude who doesn't look like he can move that well, but his skill set really isn't that far off from, you know, a Bogdan Bogdanovich, you know, a guard like that. So, I mean, you're starting to see like kind of this flattening of a role where everybody can kind of do the same thing. And you're seeing those guys like Kessler and Coloco get pushed away because they can't do as much. So that's an interesting thing. Yeah. And we'll talk about this later, but there's guys at the top, like, like Chet Holmgren, 
his dad played professional basketball and his dad forced him when he was young, not like forced against his will, but like encouraged him to play as a guard, learn those skills, and then you'll figure out the big man stuff later. And that's becoming more and more of a predominant trend in these guys. Like even these guys that grow to be 6'8", 6'10", they try to develop them with their guard skills younger because you can figure out the big man stuff later on. Yeah, super interesting. That's going to do it for uh, our NBA draft prospect list tonight. Like I said, we'll, we'll have 25 more to go through. We'll kind of work our way through those up until the draft. Um, playoffs still going on. Celtics-Miami, Heat, uh, 2-1 lead for the Heat there. Uh, big game four where obviously the Celtics will need to even the series up or, or else risk going down 3-1. The Warriors did close out the Mavericks 109-100, so that series is all but over. Uh, down 3-0 and that team has never come back from that so we're looking at a Warriors versus somebody finals and that'll be interesting to see how that plays out and obviously the lottery uh, determined the draft order so we'll have that coming up as well uh, thank you tonight, thank you for joining me tonight Sully it's, it's good to be back talking about some sports uh, we'll hopefully be back pretty soon to discuss some more things you got any more thoughts on, on what we're on what we're looking at in the NBA right now before we before we sign off no not really excited to see how the playoffs unfold and then talk more about the draft as we get closer closer to it yeah same hopefully my Celtics get out of the game four and we at least get one good series that's another thing that we've kind of started to see is there haven't been many good games of late in the playoffs so that'll be hopefully we'll get some more of those and at least get some good moments thank you so much for listening to today's episode all things NBA hopefully we'll, we'll get some other topics on here pretty soon we got some baseball going on uh, college football is kind of heating up. We'll probably I, I look forward to hopefully kind of talking about that and some of the things we've seen regarding NIL. Yeah. The Nick Saban deciding that he actually wants to create some drama. Maybe we'll talk about that coming up. So thanks for coming on tonight, Soy. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.